You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Christopher Media, let's make some noise. Steak balance. But you heard him, dude. Pick it up. I said you, Liberty. You pick it up. And the man who shot him was justifiably destined to become a hero. Yet, strangely enough, only one of these people could be sure he knew the identity of the man who shot Liberty Valance. Now you stay out of this, Donovan. He's been hiding behind your gun long enough. You got a choice, dishwasher. Either you get out of town, or tonight you'll be out in that street alone. You had a gun in his hand, didn't you? I didn't say that. That ain't murder, Mr. Marshall. That's a clean-cut case of self-defense. Now get out of my way. This time, right between the eyes. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me are a couple of rumble-tumble cowboys. First up is Mr. John Cross. Whoa, 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 I'll pick up your damn steak. Also part of the posse is Mr. Ben Buckingham. Howdy. This week we are talking about the 1962 film from director John Ford, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. The film stars Jimmy Stewart as Ransom Stoddard, a lawyer who comes out west only to get robbed by the titular Liberty Valance, who's played by the one and only Lee Marvin. The film also stars John Wayne as Tom Donovan, a man of action. Now we're going to be getting into spoilers on this episode and even telling you who was the man who shot Liberty Valance. He was the greatest of them all. Now, John... When was the first time you saw The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance, and what did you think? Uh, when I first saw it, I was at university, so it was probably about 18 years ago now, uh, 20 years ago, maybe. And there was a little market stall in my uni town, and they had a little box of DVDs. 
And the funny thing is, is I've, I've sort of never been the biggest Western connoisseur or, or even particular fan, although there are a few that I dearly love. But I was flicking through this thing and I saw that it was, was sort of John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart. And it was the, the fact that it was sort of John Wayne with an actor that I, I love Jimmy Stewart and that I really liked and admired that I was like, oh, I'm going to pick that one up because John Wayne on his own, I'm not. I don't know. There, there, there's obviously the the few classics that that I, I've definitely seen and definitely uh, love, but I'm I'm not a huge sort of John Wayne on his own fan, and I have I just haven't watched a bunch of them. I probably need to watch a lot more to be honest. But it was the Jimmy Stewart John Wayne thing, and getting it back home and putting it on, I was actually really impressed with it in terms of the fact that there's so much more going on in this film than just the usual. Up until that point, I'd probably watched predominantly spaghetti westerns, right? So, you know, it's guys riding into town and having shootouts and things like that. And so watching this one, I was impressed with, as I often am when I go back to early films, although this is late for the westerns, but when I go back to films from the 40s, 50s, and 60s, I'm always impressed that I'm like, oh, yeah, they were <laughs> they were contemporary and well-written and intelligent back then as well, you know? <laughs> So I always kind of go back then and, and uh, uh, I loved it when I first saw it. And it's been on my sort of every four to five year Western watch rotation along with uh, a few others. How about you, Ben? Well, I think it was my dad who actually introduced me to uh, the film. He, I remember when I was a teenager, both my parents decided to go back to university as mature age students. And they did a subject with a fellow, uh, Dr. John Carroll, and uh, he did the taught a subject on Western civilization and masculinity. And my parents both came to me to steal from my collection, <laughs> studying things like uh, Fight Club and Heart of Darkness and The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. So I remember watching it with my dad then and having good conversations about it and really enjoying it, but I don't think it really nailed me to my seat until I saw it in uh, 35mm a couple of years ago. And it was just, that was like, oh, I remember this being a good film, but this is like a film and just being completely floored by the complexity and the complication and the power of it. And uh, yeah, so I've, I've, I've got a little bit of a history with it. I don't remember the first time I saw this. I think I rented it on VHS and I was going through a spaghetti Western phase and was going through a real of all things, Lee Van Cleef phase. So I watched this movie for Lee Van Cleef, which is it's kind entirely, of yeah. highly understandable. It's, <laughs> he is Lee Van Cleef. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you know, that's why I watched the big combo. There were a bunch of movies I watched just for Lee Van Cleef, which was kind of a fool's errand uh, a lot of times because Lee Van Cleef was not really in this movie that much, though when he is in it, it's fantastic. And I was also a big Lee Marvin fan and watching this for Lee Marvin, I hadn't really seen that many, even John Wayne films. It wasn't until I finally watched Rio Bravo that I was completely taken by John Wayne. And one of my wife's favorite films is she loves Hatari. So I've seen him a bunch in that, but just, yeah, whatever it was, I just had this big blind spot when it came to John Wayne and to John Ford. I missed the week that they showed Stagecoach in college. I'd only seen The Quiet Man in high school for whatever reason they showed it in high school. I will admit that I have this big gap in my knowledge. And when it comes to John Ford, it's like capital J, capital F, maybe even all caps. You know, John Ford is this, this 
icon of directors. You know, I, I saw the nods to him and like even young Indiana Jones uh, stories where basically Henry Jones with the eye patch is John Ford at this one point, you know, or, um, you know, knowing that John Ford Westerns and Stagecoats in particular was the film that uh, Orson Welles watched a lot when he was getting ready to make Citizen Kane. So it's like, yeah, John Ford was this is a legend and John Ford sometimes overshadows the films themselves. And so seeing this one and expecting something completely different, because you hear about John Ford Westerns and you think immediately, you think Monument Valley and you think, uh, you know, these big vistas and all this. And Man Who Shot Liberty Valance is completely different than that. This is this stage-bound, you know, I think everything is shot on a soundstage in this movie. Maybe everything. Maybe there's a few scenes that are outside. But so much of this takes place on a soundstage. After seeing stills from the searchers, I'm expecting, you know, wide color vistas. And this is in black and white, 1962, which was kind of an odd choice. But, yeah, this was a different kind of thing. And it was also, you think of John Ford and Westerns, and this is kind of the death of the West. You know, we, we've had him basically at the beginning of the Western cycle. He's making silent Westerns. And then this, 1962, which were just two years before the Spaghetti Westerns really take off with the Fistful of Dollars. And here he is making this kind of elegy to the West and talking about you know how the legends aren't necessarily living up to what they're supposed to be. Mm, it definitely feels like the, if not the beginning, but if the, the first kind of solid foundation that the revisionist Western grows out of, uh, where it's very much questioning and pulling apart what had come before, even pulling apart most of what John Ford himself had created. I, I find black and white films that are studio films in the 60s are, are generally a good pick because there's a reason why they're black and white. And it's uh, usually reasons that help it stand the test of time. Like, for instance, Psycho, you know, the studio didn't want to give him enough money to make it in colour, supposedly. And so you have a film that stands now because it wasn't a film the studios would have made then. And then with this one, I, I, I heard a quote that, um, that Ford, uh, wanted to do it because he didn't feel that much of the film would work in other, any other form. Yeah. There was lots of stuff about the black and white that, that, that sort of dotted around, uh, reports of the movie and, and it veers between Ford having creative reasons for it the age of the actors the shadowing you know claiming the shootout wouldn't work in color various other things with also the fact that actually because of the two main actors being so high level and because it was sort of a later western paramount didn't want to give the money so it's kind of six of one half a dozen of the other i think What's kind of your guys' history with John Ford and, and seeing his Westerns? I mean, John Ford, the director, is going to kind of overshadow this episode. This is, I think, the first John Ford film we've covered, so we're going to talk about him as well as the film itself. It's really only a handful of his kind of classic stagecoach, obviously, The Searchers, this one. But it's really well-known top three or four that I've I've ever really gone into. While I've seen this film a lot, and I do love this film, and and I have seen obviously other other westerns, the the John Ford John Wayne oeuvre, as it were, not to use a pretentious sounding word, but that kind of style is something that I probably still have to do my 
exploration on, like you did, Mike, when you first saw a Wayne picture that kind of really spoke to you, or you saw a Ford picture that made you want to kind of delve more into it. I probably still have to have that Western awakening. Uh, my uh, co-host on the Doctor Action show is currently watching a whole swathe of Westerns, so maybe I'll speak to him about it. I actually stocked up on a heap. I hit up my local uh, secondhand DVD place, and I've got about seven or eight sitting there to watch, but I just haven't had the time to get into them. Uh, but I, it sounds like I might have seen a few more than you guys by the sounds of it, because I've seen a few of his more odd ones. I saw a couple of years ago The Informer, which was his first Oscar. I think he won the Oscar for The Informer as Best Director, which was, hang on, I've got this here, 1935. Mm. And that one's quite interesting because he was uh, – he was an Irish-American immigrant. The Informer is about an Irish uh, rebel who informs on his friend and then has sort of the com- Irish community turn on him. He's very much related to the IRA and the Troubles. And so that speaks to his roots a great deal and in many ways feels a bit like uh, a sort of existentialist uh, noir. Very, Al- You can imagine Albert Camus writing something like that. That's quite interesting. Of course, you know, Grapes of Wrath, I I saw a very long time ago. We had to study that in high school. And it's very much, and I think I've seen more of his films that focus on the little people, sort of the more lesser known or the, 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 you know, the more regular people than his big mythic John Wayne films. Though I've also seen, uh, Young Mr. Lincoln, which I really did not like. I had a lot of problems with the Young Mr. Lincoln, which, it came a, a lot to do with the ideology of it, um, the mythologizing of it. As as a non-American, it felt very flag-waving and chest-beating. And I've been curious to revisit it to see how I feel a second time. But it, I, on a first viewing, it put me right off. But um, I really want to revisit it now, especially because I feel like young Mr. Lincoln, if anything, man who shot Liberty Valance is almost a res- – I see a lot of people – Mention uh, my darling Clementine as this as Liberty Valance. I haven't seen my darling Clementine, but I've seen a lot of commentary about uh, Liberty Valance being a response and a sort of deconstruction of what he does in Darling Clementine. But I think it is just as much a deconstruction of what he does in Mister a young Mister Lincoln, being that you know Abraham Lincoln, a young lawyer, self-made, rising up, has the opportunity possibly to become president, etc., etc. It feels. Like Stoddard, the James Stewart character, is very much recreating that, but pulling the character out of the mythology and questioning the mythology. But as for John Wayne, I've really not seen much. Uh, I've never been a fan. And again, I think it is that that uh, reaction. we Here in Australia, we do get flooded with American iconography and culture and ideology quite a bit, so I tend to react a little bit negatively to its extreme examples. I, I do love him in Man Shop, Billy Bounce, which we will get into. But I did rewatch, I, I watched Stagecoach for the first time about three weeks ago in preparation for this. And when I saw John Wayne in Stagecoach, I went, Oh, I get it now. Mm. <laughs> it was like there was something about with the youthfulness and the vigor and how he was portrayed in that that it was like, Oh, yes, I see how he represents this. This ideal of the West and the, the the black sheep hero or the you know the leader hero. As you're talking, I'm like, oh yeah, I saw young Mister Lincoln. Oh yeah, I saw my darling Clementine. But then some of the ones that are held up as you know being more of his uh, Western standard 
like the three godfathers or she wore yellow ribbon rio grande it's like yeah no i still don't have that but even when you're talking about uh john ford and and you know he's associated with the western so much but you know you mentioned grapes of wrath not necessarily a western i mentioned the quiet man again not necessarily a western so i think that people just kind of lump him in with westerns because that was really the majority of his career but when he would go beyond that or do different things sometimes those became even better known than the westerns themselves I just remember being very, very disappointed to find out that John Ford's uh, film Chesty, a tribute to a legend, was not what I thought it was. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you see that title and you're like, come on, that's got to be a Russ Meyer doc or something, but no. Starring two bright new performers, Miss Anne Howe and her 48s. And the subject of John Ford, there, there's sort of a few myths and legends about the man himself and certainly his personality and I wonder sort of how many of those things necessarily ring true. But there was this idea that his whole brush, angry, physically imposing kind of personality that he's known for on set, berating his cast and crew and, and even in in and around the studios being a very kind of rude and angry individual occasionally, was actually masking this much more sort of open-minded, genteel, sensitive chap in private have you read any of those like myths and legends and and whether and how much do you guys buy into those i've heard those and i've also heard that yeah he was probably you know he was actually as we talk about this film and other films of his he was a very artistic person but i don't think he was comfortable with being artistic i think he associated that with being feminine and being weak and he did everything that he possibly could to go the other way when it came to making these movies and being that tyrant on set and really yeah tearing people down even though he would work with the same people over and over and over again you know we've mentioned several films that he worked with henry fonda on that he worked with john wayne quite a bit he worked with jimmy stewart quite a bit but yeah, he and and then we talk about the you know the supporting cast, which he used the same stock characters over and over and over again, which was fantastic. But he must have had something going on otherwise, because if he was just an abusive a hole, I don't know if he would have kept using the same people or if those same people would agree to come back. I mean, a job is a job, of course, but he seemed to have a very loyal cast. It's very easy to miss uh, the warmth and beauty in these kind of films. I mean, I was, I've just started watching Mindhunter, the David Fincher produced and directed, co-directed series, and watching it kind of made me realise that I'd missed warm David Fincher. And it made me really contemplate how actually many of his films are really warm and empathic towards uh characters who loses or lose themselves and then beat themselves up over it and it's he sort of you know someone like fincher is often associated with the very you know the cold kubrickian the ocd obsessive perfectionist but there's such humanity in a lot, great many of his films like the game and you know even fight club and i think i, I see the same thing in ford like you know a a, a hard angry man well, I'll say a man who is only hard and angry, I don't think could make the man who shot Liberty Valance as it is. It is too hopeful and as they're warm and watching it, I had, I had chills in that early scene when, when, um, you know, Vera Miles and Annie Devine are talking about the cactus rose. 
that's just like it is such just a simple and beautiful and emotional scene. So yeah, no, I, I would say that probably you know six of one half a dozen the other for the the myths and the reality. One of the things that I think ties a lot of the main characters, certainly John Wayne, James Stewart, and uh, Woody Strode, in the film is uh, nobility and you know nobility based on a different collection of morals right or a different collection of kind of societal codes or whatever you want to call them the interesting thing that comes from nobility is that it can often seem like this cold lofty pompous aloof thing but there's also always like you say empathy and emotion and a heart to nobility that definitely comes through in those characters in the film and Vera Miles as well. I mean, like the reaction when her character Haley uh, initially mentions that, you know, she's illiterate and the fact that she's kind of like, well, you know, on one hand, she kind of is aware of that shortcoming. And on the other hand, she's like, you know, but I never, she's very kind of proud of who she is and how far she's got w- without it, you know? So it, there's this, there's this wonderful like pride and nobility that I think is, is undercut by like the warmth and humanity of it. In a weird way, it's always a way that I think of kind of old English characters. Like when people talk about sort of England and the stiff upper lip and all the rest of it, a lot of that kind of rose-tinted spectacle version of the old English colonel or whatever it is in his rotting country estate house, there's always that humanity and humility to the pride and nobility. And I think that's kind of the this movie definitely plays on that as well, I think. Yeah, the, the the stiff upper lip thing, I think it's it's often ignored how much that has to do with community because it is about, you know, holding strong together. It's not about necessarily about being an individual who's distanced and separated. It's very much, you know, well, we're all in this together and we'll all be strong and we'll all have stiff upper lips and they can't take us. And I've just found my note here that, that Ford was a first-generation Irish-American and I feel that that gave him a front row seat to social prejudice because, you know, the Irish were t- despised and, you know, like the, the, there's a reason why there's only been, uh, you know, one Catholic president. Um, was it the, when the KKK were reforming in, in the forties, they were against you know, Jewish people and African Americans and Catholics. And certainly there were a great many Irish Americans are included in that. And I think that, yeah, he, as I said, he had a front row seat to that kind of social prejudice. And I think that being a family from a family of immigrants and being looked down upon um, gave him a really strong sense of um, connection and disconnection and recognising the various forms that those forces can take as they drive humanity across great distances, either geographically or socially. Um, and I think that that is a lot of what powers his films. Yeah, a lot of people forget these days how downtrodden the irish were the irish haven't forgotten all right we'll give some land to the niggers and the chinks but we don't want the irish these are the guys who are building the railroads with black people and chinese immigrants and it's like okay you know we forget that there were oh for god's sakes white people working on this stuff but they were seen as being less than human back then being english i can't really comment on the whole irish thing (laughs) I've got a mixture of Irish, English, and Scottish blood in me, but I'm well removed from it, so I will bite my tongue as well. The internal conflict within you must be... 
supposedly there's royal bastards in the bloodline somewhere as well. So I really just got to hate myself. The uh, one of the John Ford films I saw a very long time ago that I'd forgotten about was The Fugitive, another Henry Fonda one, which was based on the Graham Greene novel The Power and the Glory, which was about uh, I believe a Catholic priest in Mexico who was on the run after Christianity and Catholicism were outlawed. And I, I don't remember it being a particularly good film. Uh, I had read the book very close to seeing it, and the book is incredible. But, um, yeah, again, that feeds very much into that that social prejudice and the outsider and, and coming from a, a belief system and a society that is then outlawed and hunted. Uh, it's certainly an, an interesting um, aspect of his films, which, again, is not often uh, addressed. I'm going to get into trouble here when I posit that Tom Donovan, the John Wayne character, is of Irish background. Because every time I heard them say Donovan, I thought Donovan and Donovan's Reef. But it seems my, like a, a strange name. My my girlfriend was half watching this over my shoulder. And I've got to say, she was definitely making some googly eyes at the young Lee Van Cleef. And I can't blame her. But she also, every time they said John Donovan, she was like, oh, I've got her last name's Donaldson and it's Scottish. And she has a cousin whose name is John. So they, thought they were just saying it with a lisp every time. So there's also... Yeah possible scottish association there okay i don't know it's 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 definitely it's it's an the, the, I mean, that, that's a, like the names in this film it's hard often to fear to pin down what they mean but the names are so suggestive that you really got to wonder what the origins of them are yeah, and that one was one of the definite changes between the short story and the script was changing that character who was Bert something in the Dorothy M. Johnson story and changing it to Tom Donovan in the the movie, and then changing the name of the town from Two Trees in the story to Shinbone, which is one of the best names. You know, <laughs> calling it Shinbone is fantastic. Mm. And again, I hope somebody takes me to task for this. I want to say that this is the movie where we hear John Wayne use Pilgrim, and I don't think he used it before this, and I don't necessarily know he, if he used it after this. This is the first example of him using Pilgrim, and it became so iconic, I think, that people just associated. It's like the whole Jimmy Cagney, you dirty rat thing, you know, or play it again, Sam. Like, they never really said that. I mean, obviously, Wayne says Pilgrim in the movie, but I just mean in terms of iconic kind of quotes that get put against an actor i think the the fact that this film and i think the black and white definitely helps with this this film is somewhat timeless um in terms of you can really experience it at, at, at any point and it will be contemporary and relevant because they're kind of talking about very human things and they're also talking about sort of the way politics and society was sort of put together at the beginning of America. And even now, 250 years later, America is still wrestling with that. So that, that will always kind of be, be relevant and, and so on. But, but I've got a feeling uh, in my favorite John Wayne movie of all time, people are going to laugh at this, but I'm a big Brannigan fan. <laughs> I'm sure he calls Richard Annenberg like, all right, Pilgrim at the end of that movie or something. Maybe that, again, that's just the iconic Wayne thing. But this is definitely the first movie where he uses it. Well, it's, it's interesting also, the Pilgrim, because that associates again with religious persecution. Right. Um, and the Pilgrims, you know, fleeing, being forced out of England uh, and f helping to found America. So it, you've got a dual 
meaning there, symbolic meaning in that it, it ties directly to the very origins of modern America, and it also associates with the uh, persecution of minorities. And here's Ransom Stoddard, the James Stewart character, is the pilgrim. He keeps calling him pilgrim specifically because James Stewart does not belong. He comes from the East, and I don't know how long these people that are in the West have been in the West, but I'm assuming maybe they're second generation. If not, they've been there for a long darn time, a lot longer than this tenderfoot coming from the East. This tenderfoot who doesn't have a gun, and instead he carries a law book and wants to tame the West with the law book. And kind of succeeds in a weird way you know it's this whole thing of uh, he's not a a a religious pilgrim insofar as i don't want to hold a gun he you know has not necessarily those type of moral stipulations so he he does in a way but he feels that the law is the right way to go we're going to persecute criminals with the law rather than with a gun and that's the the at the crux of the story is is that conflict, but then the way that the story is told, I mean, just that we wrap this thing in this, this outside story, that is a great way to undermine what's happening in the story and to undermine what's in the, the wrapper as well. I think it's a really well put together screenplay. Completely. And it's also one of those favorite things is that it is subtly a discourse about guns and violence versus politics and the law. It's also one of those things that could seem very heavy-handed in, in, in someone else's hands. And certainly the way it's set up and the way he is so defiantly anti-gun and he's, you know, I'm going to use the law and da-da-da-da-da in the same way that John Wayne is like, you won't get very far without a gun. And, you know, th- there's a certain mocking tone in Wayne's like, all right, have your aspirations, but, you know, at the end of the day, you're going to come to me to shoot someone, you know? Votes won't stand up against guns. Yeah. Right, and, and, <laughs> and yet it doesn't seem heavy-handed to me. Like, I'm, I'm watching it now, obviously, with the reality that we're facing at the moment between politics and guns, neither good, and you're watching this film where they're actually trying to have, throughout the movie and throughout the arc of the characters, some intellectual discourse between the two, and I think that... What's interesting is by the end of the film, it's sort of saying that both have their place in a weird way. Like it's sort of saying that votes and politics and society and all that is born on the back of, uh, you know, and and, uh, uh, gentility even is born on the back of someone with a gun or some form of violence. And when you have you know, the ultimate argument all the time from, from gun owners is always, that's fine until someone with a bigger gun than yours, like, comes busting into your house and starts, like, smashing everything up. Like, what are you going to do then? And that is definitely discussed in this movie as well, you know, with Liberty Valance, who is this relentlessly violent, power-hungry character who will, will stoop to any lengths to get what he wants and to keep his lifestyle. So, that was what was most fascinating to me. And it's also rather than, you know, the, the the tendency these days is to fall down on either side, right? And have this big division and have, well, I'm for this and I'm for that. And I'm, you're either for peace or you're for war. And I think what's interesting about a film like this is that actually it shows the gray area that is reality, which is that, sure, it's wonderful to be a peacenik and have liberal attitudes and have freedom of speech and all that thing 
but all those come at a cost. And I think that's one of those things where it also allows both Jimmy Stewart and John Wayne to be a hero of their own story and both realize the limitations in their attitudes. Basically, we start with Tom Donovan is dead, which is a great place to start this. You know, the the West is dead. When John Wayne dies, the West is dead. And that is so much the story of this story for me, is the way that the West is being tamed. And it's being tamed by these tinderfoots like Jimmy Stewart, but also they are. it's being tamed by the men with the guns like Tom Donovan. But the way of the gun is fading away. But yet, there are still remnants of the old West there, such as that cactus flower and the cactus flower that you, you talked about that uh, exchange between Vera miles and uh, Andy divine about the cactus flower and the cactus flower is so much the symbol of this movie. And also the way that the cactus flower plays with water and that water also is part of this movie and water and irrigation are also the way that we're going to tame the West and we're going to bring water to the West and we're going to take this land and we're going to transform it. It's not just good enough to move out West and live in the West. We now have to take the things from the East, like quote unquote civilization, such as the law and move it out West and change everything about the West. So the making room and pushing out the, the, old ways of the cowboys and bringing this new way of, you know, the irrigation, the law, the this, the that, the civilization, you know, that's, that's so much of what this film is at. Um, and yeah, it, it's such a, a nice way to start this off and to, you know, the, the way that Jimmy Stewart is ready to come clean in this and that, so much of this film is a flashback being told by Stuart, who we don't necessarily know if he's the most reliable narrator or not, because we don't necessarily know this guy from Adam when the film starts off. I mean, we have to empathize with him and we have to go in with him because he is our narrator, not necessarily a literal narrator, which is good. So we get a little bit of distance there, but he's the one that is essentially telling us this tale. He feels so much like a caricature when you first meet him. Um, not so much the makeup because it's actually pretty good old people makeup, admittedly helped by the black and white. But yeah, he, he's at the beginning, he feels like a caricature and you very quickly see the shifting sides of him between the public persona, which is the senator, and the private persona, who's the husband and the, the man who remembers the past. And even that kind of shows you that this is maybe not such a reliable person, but he does, when he shifts into telling the story, he's no longer the senator. He's just, you know, that that kid who rocked up in a stagecoach seeking fame, fortune, and unfortunately a bullet. Hmm. But I, I think that the, the cactus rose for me, uh, it, it represents uh, the softness that can grow out of hardness, and maybe that even ties into Ford himself, and we were talking about earlier that, that you know, the, the illusion that hard men are deserts and that the desert is only desolation, but they're not. Their roses can grow there too. They're just a different kind of rose, which, you know, Stoddard himself is clearly unable to recognize the beauty, and he sees the cactus rose, and he immediately starts talking about real roses instead. Well, he's not really taunting her. Like, he's trying to be romantic. There's part of him that's also kind of showing off that he's seen, you know, a real rose, and, you know, what do you know, <laughs> living in the desert. But there's... The nice wraparound to it is the fact that all these years later, when they go back to Shinbone, when Donovan has died, 
is that not only does she want to go out, not only does Haley want to go out and see Donovan's old house, but she also wants to take the rose there, the cactus rose there. And it's, it's, it's this thing where she can't quite let go of, you know, her first love. You know what I mean? It doesn't necessarily undermine her clearly long lasting marriage with Jimmy Stewart, but, but it does mean that there is still that heart beating under there for for donovan not only for what he did for stoddart but also what he meant to her initially and actually the love triangle and and the way it's played again could have been very difficult because you don't necessarily want to make stewart seem like a lech you don't necessarily want to make stewart seem like he's whisking Haley out from underneath donovan but it feels very natural to me it feels very organic to me and it feels very understandable and it adds to wayne's donovan uh, john wayne has this ridiculous uh not ridiculous but very kind of um artistic and emotional response uh to realizing his woman is is lost to him and not because Stuart has tried to uh, and I know I'm going back between character and actor names. It's very t- <laughs> I should I should stick to one, um, but not because Stoddart has done anything purposeful to completely uh, usurp that relationship, but because she herself has made that decision. Donovan has to reconcile with this, and he has this extreme reaction to it, but then still kind of comes to Stoddart's aid in the end. That's all very fascinating and interesting when it comes to sort of the character interplay, and certainly plays into the some of the softness, but also some of the empathy and regret and various other emotions that, that come out in the sort of last portion of the film. They're all smart, good men, but they're also dumb men for different reasons, each of them, but they're still often very dumb. I mean, Donovan is stolid to the point of fault and he can't overcome that. And that leads to his own failures. And Stoddard is idealistic to the point of blindness where, yeah, he can't, see what she sees in the cactus rose and he can't see what is worth saving in that town he can only see this ideal future because when he brings water to the west with this irrigation bill that they're talking about as he's in the wrapper he's you know senator stoddard i imagine that the water's going to get rid of the cactus roses it's also interesting by the end uh oh sorry even at the 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 first wraparound when, when they first are traveling back to Shinbone, that there is a lot of discussion about how much has changed and how, well, it's safer and it's, you know, nicer and it's better for families and all the rest of it. It's not necessarily the exciting, vibrant, uh, alive place that it once was, you know, <laughs> you know what I mean? So there's, there's that edge been taken off. I mean, I always think of the way people talk about Times Square in the sense that, you know, oh, back in the day, it was sort of rough and ready and gritty. And there's this sort of uh, uh, wonderful nostalgia for a time when essentially criminals were running amok <laughs> in the center of a major metropolitan city in the country. Like there's this nostalgia for the pimps and the drug addicts and the hookers and all that other stuff. Um, because now when people go, all they see is sort of the disnification of it all, uh, if they'd lived through that originality. But at the same time, as being someone who's kind of come to New York in the last 10 years, for me, I like the fact I can walk around Times Square at two in the morning and not worry about being injected with a hypodermic needle or stabbed in the back. There's that dichotomy, right? We all love watching Taxi Driver, but at the same time, we all like our uh, safety. So, um, you know, there's that definitely being played uh, up in the depiction of Shinbone, both in the present and in the past. 
that ties it very much into uh, two other films that I associate a lot with Liberty Valance, and one of them is Fight Club, which again is very much that tension between the civilised male and the uncivilised male, um, and also very much about self-destructive males, which we see Donovan completely disappear into at one stage. Um, and side note, he definitely cannot hold his liquor. He has about like four shots and he's gone. That's the, the fight club that also plays this out and definitely a, a, a contemporary setting and, and, you know, in the, in Times Square as opposed to the frontier, so to speak. But also, and I, again, I, I, I this is a film I hope to revisit before talking about this because it's been a long time since I saw it, but I remember seeing Tommy Lee Jones's Three Burials of Melchiatas Estrada mm. and feeling it worked very well as a counterpoint to Liberty Balance where it saw an America that was slipping backwards, that the frontier was now becoming a place where the civilization was the dangerous thing that was causing destruction and havoc and that the wilderness was more of a place of honour and and hope and that that was where the future lay. I remember watching Fight Club the second or third time I watched it. Because I think the first time you watch it, you kind of get all dragged into the dissection of what it means to be a man at that point in history and you know material objects and all that stuff that tyler durden is kind of talking about you kind of go yeah you know and you kind of get into that especially if you were uh, an early 20 something like i was when i when i watched it but the, the second or third time i watched it i remember watching it as this very interesting not just a love triangle which kind of plays into liberty valance but also as this relationship like that if if you watch fight club as a relationship movie, it's this wonderful like Jekyll and Hyde story between how nice uh, a, a man can be when he wants to get you into bed, essentially, and what assholes they are the next morning. <laughs> and there's this there's this really fascinating like back and forth between that, you know. And in fact, actually, Marla Singer, who's played to be someone who you, if you ever met her, might not like her because she seems very ballsy and brassy and. Uh, non-committal and all the rest of it is actually the victim throughout that whole film <laughs> when you look at it from a relationship standpoint the comparisons between if you look at it uh, initially before you realize the twist of fight club the comparisons between the sort of love triangle that is depicted in that and the love triangle that is depicted in this is sort of there's some uh, similarity there as well so we have an inciting act when we get into that core story of that and that is the stagecoach robbery with the meeting of ransom stoddard and liberty valance and i'm curious what is liberty valance's motivation like in in this one obviously he wants money he wants stuff but as liberty valance goes through this film it feels like he's using he's being used or knows he's being used as a political tool and that it's interesting how it changes from just an old west you know bandit story to more of a political story and really you know we we know that the end game for stoddard or where he's at when we saw him in the rapper story is he's now much higher in a political level and now we we start at the bottom and we're moving up from here but it feels like liberty valance is changing as the story goes along as well that very much plays into the dual meaning of the title, dual symbolism of the title, in that, you know, if this was any other typical Western, it, the man who shot Liberty Valance would be about a hero who shot Liberty Valance. But instead, the man who shot Liberty Valance refers to the illusion of a myth 
and the failure of those formative myths and how they don't really communicate reality and they can be illusionary. And so it makes sense that the film, once Liberty Valance has been shot, turns into a political film, which is political dialogue through and through. Um, it's a bit of a, a misdirect. Yeah, and it's also that in order to tell the story of Stoddart and Donovan, to some extent, Liberty Valance has to just be an antagonist. It just has to be the problem they both have to deal with. I'm not sure uh, how much I could kind of break down Liberty Valance's character beyond the fact that he's just one of those cowboys that likes the West the way it was and his ability to drink anything, shoot anything, and sleep with anything, rather than necessarily having to wake up and deal with any kind of responsibility or, you know, job or life or anything like that. Like, he's willing to take anyone's money to shoot up a bar kind of thing. But I think that's sort of more him just being a generic antagonist, really, because there's no real time to... You've got to walk the tightrope throughout the movie of Stoddart's character, because... He has to have all the nobility, but he also has to have the heroism of actually, okay, I am going to learn how to shoot a pistol and I am going to be the guy who shoots Liberty Valance. But then he's also got to be the guy who then wears the guilt of having shot Liberty Valance and meaning that I can't now run for public office because I did this, I murdered a man. And then he has to be the person who then wears the myth of having shot Liberty Valance when he finds out that actually Donovan shot him, he has to wear that as sort of then a guilty thing around his neck forever as well, because for some, his political rise is down to the fact that he did that, even though he didn't do that. So he's got to be this this, this character that's sort of walking this tightrope. He can never become the greedy politician who uses the fact that he shot Liberty Valance to his advantage fully, because I don't think that he does. I think that he wrestles with it, and then it's Wayne who kind of gives him the permission to kind of go out there and and sort of go, okay, I'll use this just to get to this point. So we have to like him. He has to be idealistic. He has to be positive. He has to be someone we can essentially root for in the same way that Wayne has to be a hero, despite the fact that he's a hard-shooting, hard-drinking guy. I don't think there's time in the script or the movie to necessarily say, well, Liberty Valance also has his shades or his colors or his differences because i think uh his role in the script is to be an antagonist for these two guys who are wrestling with their own identity based on their moral certainty and the paths that they've chosen that also ties into the you know that that stoddard is narrating this this is his version of the story and so from his perspective that's all liberty valance was was a vicious gun and a whip and i think it's interesting also that a lot of what you're saying speaks to that in those final scenes, we kind of get the actual statement of the film. And I think this film makes many statements and has many important things, but I think underlying it all is uh, a statement that good men must carry guilt while bad men don't know what it is. All along, we like we know, we've heard of these, you know, the ranchers and the money people and the people who are pushing to have, you know, power. And we know that they're associated with Valance because he's been out killing farmers who fight back. And so then when we finally see them and we meet them at the end, they're even less of a character 
than valence is, but we understand them through our experience of valence and we know that they are men who do not feel guilt at their actions. And that's why it's so important that Stoddard attempts to leave, that he backs down from it and he allows his guilt to overcome him. And that's when, you know, Donovan has to step in and say, you know, that your your guilt is not what you think it is and you need to get back out there despite carrying it, that carrying it is actually what makes you a good man and makes you capable of doing this. Yeah, and there's also commentary that no good man in power a, ever got there completely by himself, but also, secondly, didn't get there without getting his hands dirty. You know what I mean? Even even the good people that are revered in power, whether it be presidents or politicians or heads of companies, and there are only a few, but the few good people that, that have made it uh, to those offices all have things that we as idealists would criticize or all have things on, on their in their past that unsavory compared to you know, what they actually stand for. So there's that whole idea of, you know, anyone in power must have some level of corruption or negativity in their, on their copybook. But there's also, on the flip side of that, then, there's also the fact that, but even 25 years later, the guy on the train at the very end of the movie is still perfectly happy that he's the senator who shot this Liberty Valance. So he's there's also that uh, that idea of the public wanting their... Uh, heroes, the public wanting their icons, the public wanting, the, and also the fact that the, the public can reconcile a violent act with the good and positivity that, that might come from it uh, eventually, I think. There's that part where at the end he says, you know, anything for the man who shot Liberty Valance. And Jimmy Stewart's face is not one where he's like, oh, I wear that proudly. He wears it with like, God, is that still following me around? It's a flinch. He flinches at it rather than anything, yeah. This is all I, I'll ever be, and it shows that still years later, despite whatever he's done that is true to his moral compass, the fact that people believe that about him will always bother him to the grave. That, to me, is fascinating. Yeah, I think that ties back to what I was saying about the young Mr. Lincoln. I didn't get a sense of any of that from young Mr. Lincoln. That I, I, It's almost like Ford recognises that he... He failed in in showing that complication and that uh, kind of reality in his depiction of Lincoln, and so instead he you know he he shows that this, this he he does a much more successful job of of treating that here, but I, I think there's also speaking of characterization like costume of these three figures is so important to characterization because yes. liberty valence is ridiculous <laughs> like he's it's it's a dandy like outfit which to our, our modern sensibilities it seems um, contradictory for him to be you know making fun of the womanly stoddard while he's wearing all his finery but if you strip that away and you forget the word dandy and just look at what he's wearing and his silver covered whip or whatever they called it, it's money. He has money. He has the ability to buy these fineries that none of the other people in the town do or wish to. Um, whereas, you know, opposite you've got Donovan, who's in the very traditional kind of cowboy outfit, very, you know, minimalist and utilitarian. And then you've got, you know, um, Stoddard, who is a man who is unafraid to wear an apron and who continues to wear his mended jacket that was torn by Valance at the beginning. Um, and that speaks so much to the kind of the, the characterization and their identities. How much do you think in the two characterizations of John Wayne and, and Jimmy Stewart is the fact that this is a Kennedy era Western and obviously 
Kennedy was preceded by Eisenhower, which was obviously this this big military figure, uh, um, and then Kennedy is this sort of early '60s idealist, or that's certainly like the way they're seen. How much do you think that kind of played into that, or, or it, and I haven't read the original story, but I'm sorry about that. But is all this in the original story, and that just happens to be a neat coincidence? The idea of him being a hero, being made a hero by the Donovan character, that is in there. Uh, I totally agree with you that there are that, that there's a resonance of the Eisenhower uh, Kennedy era. You were talking about heroes and myths and all these things, and of course, Eisenhower has the war, and then. Kennedy, one of the reasons why he got into office was that he was a war hero, that he had the whole PT-109 story, and that helped really solidify in people's minds, oh, he's this guy, and he did this. And it's very much like that, oh, he's the man who shot Liberty Valance. And you even think of today, when we have this whole thing of, you know, President Bone Spurs or John Kerry and the Swift Boat stuff and blah, blah, blah. And it becomes like, you know, what was their record before that? And that was one of the big selling points for Kennedy was he was the hero of PT-109. And the irony, of course, in the movie is both James Stewart and Lee Marvin and John Ford himself were all decorated war veterans, whereas John Wayne never was. <laughs> and John, and in fact, John Ford, again, rumors, myths, legends have it that John Ford berated uh, uh, John Wayne on this movie possibly more than he ever had done before. And one of the things he constantly brought up was his lack of service, uh, which we know is something that, that sort of wrangled with Wayne for a long time in his li later life, looking back and wishing that after playing all these characters and war heroes and everything that he'd kind of actually really done it. And yet, you know, Jimmy Stewart, Lee Marvin was a Marine, you know, <laughs> these guys were, were actual proper war veterans and Wayne was not, although they're obviously, you know, Wayne is obviously playing the military in this example and Stewart is playing, you know, society, politics and a somewhat more liberal bent. Yeah, well, it's, um, I know that Lee Marvin, you know, as most veterans were, was severely affected by his oh, yeah. time in war. And he brings that to, to so many of his characters. Um, you know, like the, obviously the, the, the one that comes to mind most is Point Blank, with his character who just feels like a shattered human trying to pull everything together with violence. You know, it, while it, it doesn't come through as much as Liberty Valance, you can certainly see that that smoldering anger and pain behind his eyes, which just, you know, it, 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 it really, even though it is a kind of a small part and there isn't much characterization, Marvin brings so much to Liberty Valance. It's quite remarkable. It's also interesting because, you know, we do see this division all the time between, you know, the so-called, like I said earlier, the peacenik liberals and the, the kind of gun-toting Republicans. And and the, 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 the funny thing is, is there is almost a history, not just in the actors in this movie, but there is a history of liberals who have strong societal ideas who have actually fought in wars and, you know, support the military and all that other thing. And there's, and what I like about the movie is that it's, it, it's, it's examining that. And if anything, the only way it could kind of go further is if you had a second story where there was a flashback where Stuart's character Stoddart had sort of reconciled with the violence versus society kind of thing and was sort of promoting both. Like I say, in reality, people are a variety of things. They're not just one thing or the other. 
And I, I think this, this movie definitely talks to that. Except, like we've said before, with the Liberty Valance character, because he doesn't really have... It's not like he has a girl at home who he's really sweet to, you know? There's, there's, there's no, like, other other side to him but the violence. It, it is a bit good, the bad, and the ugly-ish, where, you know, the good and the ugly get to be gray and the, the bad is definitely bad <laughs> but I, it's it's interesting that um speaking of the original short story i've got just a couple of semi-connected thoughts surrounding this as i looked into it because I, I didn't realize uh, dorothy dorothy johnson who wrote the original short story and an interesting note that it is based on a story written by a woman um, it definitely brings a different perspective to than most Westerns. But she also wrote a book that was made into – well, she wrote a book called A Man Called Horse, which would right. become A Man Called Horse with Richard Harris. And it's, it's interesting because I, I wrote my honours thesis on cannibalism and uh, specifically American cannibalism, but I studied a fair bit of Italian cannibalism films and American cannibalism films. And a man called Horse gets ripped off in Italy and turned into essentially Man from Deep River, which is the first Italian Amazonian cannibal film. And there's a whole interesting strain of, of societal violence and cannibalism and anthropology down there. But in studying all of that, I read a book by Will Wright on um, uh, structural theory and Western films. And one of my favorite quotes from it is very appropriate here to our discussion. And it's that, um, the, the Western myth has become part of the cultural language by which America understands itself. So that definitely, with what you were bringing up about Kennedy and this being sort of very representative of that shifting eras, a hundred percent. Like this is, this is America kind of speaking to itself through its own personal mythology. The other thing that came up, because we haven't really talked about him that much, is is Woody Strode in the role of Pompey. The only thing I kind of had to say about it is sort of, that in future films, like in, in a contemporary Western made in the 80s or the 90s or the 2000s, you feel like if there was a character like Woody Strode's character in this, that some comment would be made about it, right? So Liberty Valance would be incredibly racist towards him or something like that. There would be some kind of thing pointing out the racism and, and, and the uh, undermining that character. And what's, and, and almost similarly with the, the Swedish family that owned the restaurant, like they, I feel like if this was, and there was some talk about remaking this in 2015, which uh, just drives me nuts because it's the last thing that needs to be remade. But anyway, um, well, everything's the last thing. No, nothing needs to be remade. I don't know. I think, I think contemporary America could do with listening to some of those political speeches at the end. Oh, no, no, right. But they should, they should just reissue it. They should, they, they don't have to remake it. They could just reissue it. But, um, the, you know, again, there's no sort of big, uh, talk about, uh, immigration or anything like that. And what's, what's interesting is that the character that Woody Strode plays is undermined only in subtle realistic ways like he's left out of the voting procedure for example like you see him outside and even though he has some uh, uh discussion um uh, about you know uh the the freedom of man and 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 his owner and and uh uh Stoddart and the various other things like he's still left out of the the voting which is shown in a very kind of subtle way and it's not made a huge thing of but it's in there to some extent i find that more interesting and more powerful that in 1962 there's this movie with an african-american lead who is treated with respect and positivity and by all the characters in the film rather than our more contemporary way of dealing with older racism which is to go oh my god look how horribly racist everybody was and and it's not that both examples 
didn't exist. I'm not trying to say that. I'm just saying that sometimes it's refreshing to see that a movie made in an era where there was still division, there was still segregation, there was still obviously big racial and cultural issues, which there are today. I don't mean that, but I just mean in an era when it was all blowing up, it's almost more powerful to have this character in the movie not be defined entirely by his race. Does that make any sense? Yeah, definitely. But there's, there's actually, this is one of the things I wanted to ask about. Hey, Mike, how's your knowledge of the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence? Uh, it could be <laughs> Because I, I found, a, I was, when I was looking up stuff on this, there's a review on Letterboxd that talks about the schoolhouse scene. And it says that when, because he, he asked what he showed to recite the Constitution, and Stuart corrects him, but supposedly, according to this review, Stuart recites the Declaration of Independence, telling him that that's the Constitution. Right. So actually, if that's correct, then uh, Woody Strode's character, Pompeii, is the one who is correctly stating the Constitution and giving the correct information, whereas Stoddard is in the wrong and is forgetting his Constitution, which he says, that's okay, a lot of people forget it. I wonder if anybody in class remembers what the basic law of the land is called. Now, you remember I told you that it had to be added to and changed from time to time by things called amendments. Now, does anybody remember? Poppy, you you try this one. It was written by Mr. Thomas Jefferson of Virginia. It was written, Poppy. Written by Mr. Thomas Jefferson. And he called it the Constitution. Declaration of Independence. Uh, It begun with the words, uh, we hold these truths to be uh, self-evident. Let them alone, Charlie. Uh, self-evident that, uh, that... That all men are created equal. That's fine, Pompey. I knew that, Mr. Ranch, but I just plumb forgot it. Oh, that's all right, Pompey. A lot of people forget that part of it. You did just fine, Pompey. That is very, very much a, 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 a powerful and fascinating statement from, from the writers and thought, from Ford. You know, Ben, you've brought up uh, masculinity and Fight Club, and Johnny mentioned the apron that, that he's wearing at one point, Rance Stoddard. And, you know, the, this whole movie, there are so many moments that are undercutting Rance Stoddard as being an effective hero, that he can't shoot straight, that he can't he gets the shit kicked out of him. The first One of the first scenes we see, he gets the shit kicked out of him. And I love that. The weapon of choice for Liberty Balance is that silver-handled, it's either a whip or a quirt, that that is his weapon of choice. He could easily shoot people, but no, he'd rather just beat the shit out of them and whip them. And there's nothing more humiliating, I think, than whipping someone and just taking away their masculinity like that. And he's constantly doing that, even to the point of you know the, the line that you said at the very, very beginning of the show, the whole steak scene. I mean, that is this whole macho standoff between Liberty Valance and eventually Tom Donovan, and then Stuart kind of being the quote-unquote bigger man, even though he's wearing an apron, and trying to settle the whole situation with words rather than with actions, which is what those two guys want to do desperately. Yeah, I mean, there you've probably put your finger on if there is any uh, kind of underlying depth to the Valance character, it's the fact that he beats people to death. It's in the sense that that shows a level of sort of violence and anguish in a person, certainly looked at now from sort of the post-psychotherapy era. Looking at it, that kind of shows a very pent-up 
anger and insecurity in a person. That's that's not just like violence for violence sake. That's almost, you know, was he beaten as a kid? Like there's things you can maybe extrapolate as to why he doesn't just in Wayne style kind of shoot someone or sock someone in the jaw you know, which seems like a very, it doesn't seem reasonable, but it seems at least understandable. Whereas beating someone to death, that shows like this, uh, uh, somewhat deeper, more anguished personality, I guess. Yeah. I think he gets pulled off beating somebody half to death, like the least twice, maybe three times. But it's also, if we think about again, like the, the costume and what I said before about that difference between Stoddard and the private and public self, um, perhaps the film is suggesting that Valens is, you know, a, a, a psychopath, that he is empty, that he is nothing but surface and that he wears this finery to give himself some identity because he has none beyond his own violence. Right, and it's also playing up to the insecurity of people like that. You know, bullies like to strut around and believe they're cock of the walk, top of the tree kind of thing because and fine clothes and whatever is a way to immediately show that. Well, it's it's actually it's really fascinating you say that because one of the things I noted was that uh, the co-screenwriter Willis Goldbeck, the vast majority of his films I wasn't familiar with or hadn't seen, but he wrote Freaks, Todd Browning's Freaks. That makes so much sense in relation to Liberty Valance because that's a film about tyranny and it's a film about bullies. No, completely, completely. Yeah, that's an interesting fact. I, I hadn't looked into that. Yeah, I mean, Lee Marvin, the, the Liberty Valance with Struther Martin and Lee Van Cleef as his two toadies. I love, you know, <laughs> like I said, I watched this movie for, for Lee Van Cleef the first time around and just him in the background and Struther Martin. And then when Liberty Valance gets killed, oh, spoilers, but when Liberty Valance gets shot, they become even worse. And I want to say that they end up saying like, oh, we want him arrested for... <laughs> <laughs> they want to use the law now because uh he was killed no i was just gonna say it's it's like it's like biff and billy zane in back to the future <laughs> that's what i was gonna say anyway, sorry carry on i undermined your serious yeah. point with a stupid point oh i was just gonna say it sounds a lot like the 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 current uh uh dialogues going on in America where it's like, oh, you know, lock them up, lock them up for this. But, oh, our guys did it. It's fine. <laughs> yeah, no, of course. And and that's, I'm I'm constantly surprised. And I always say this, um, and, and I kind of need to possibly stop saying it. But when I go back to movies from obviously an era before mine and see such rich humanity, whether it's positive humanity or negative humanity, to see such rich humanity dissected, it definitely shows that when filmmaking was at its, certainly even the studio system was at its height, that there were still these incredibly rich and intelligent scripts being written. And when you look at sort of movies today, the so-called films that purport to have some kind of depth, whether it's Moonlight or the, what was the, the Florida one or, or even Lady Bird or whatever it is, there really is, like, no one's writing an idea like the idea behind Liberty Valance. Like, no one's, no one's crafting the characters to have multiple layers. They're really just looking at something and going, you know, oh, isn't poverty terrible? Or, you know, uh, um, isn't the, I don't know, the inward workings of uh, a young 20-something woman complicated or whatever? Like, there, there's no real beyond these sort of basic themes, there's really nothing ever explored in these contemporary movies. You go back to movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, 
and not every single one. There's plenty of genre films are made that are just genre films. But but there are some of these that stick out that you're like, God, I could do with some of that right now. I could do with some of that screenwriting, and I could do with some of those characterizations in modern movies. And look, I'm as escapist as the next person. I'm as excited for the next Marvel movie or blockbuster movie or whatever. As an I know exactly what you mean because I had the word that's come to mind recently to describe a lot of contemporary American cinema is juvenile. And it's not just, it, I'm not saying that it's bad, but it's juvenile. It's like watching Mother recently. And it's like, oh, I, you know, I thought Mother was actually okay. And I think it's a good, you know, baby's first metaphor kind of film. Mm. But it's still, I've seen that film done dozens of times with maturity and intelligence, whereas Mother was just juvenile. And it's like... No, I was just going to say, even the so-called, uh, um, you know, directors who who do intelligent scripts or, 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 or well-written scripts or, you know, who get praised, whether it's the, the Finches of the World or, uh, uh, you know, God forbid, fucking Tarantino or someone, um, or Scorsese even in recent years... A Spielberg with stuff like The Post, and I watch The Post, and I'm like, "All right, but it's it's not all the President's Men by any uh, stretch of the imagination, and it's not saying anything new or contemporary or relevant either, really, because the contemporary story that should be made about the Fourth Estate is what an absolute fucking shambles the Fourth Estate is right now. It shouldn't be the movie about like where the Fourth Estate fights to uphold the Fourth state we know that already that's what it should be doing it's not doing that let's you know so there's there's such a lack of even in so-called highbrow arty films there is such a lack of anything that would produce an hour and a half discussion like we've had i couldn't talk on on any of the so-called highbrow movies that have come out recently for probably more than 20 minutes I have to say, like, I've seen a couple of films recently that do point to that, and I do love the, the Benson and Moorhead guys who have The Endless going out at the moment. If you get a chance to see The Endless and their first film, Resolution, I don't think, I'm not saying that they're at the level of something like Liberty Valance, but they, they're, they're giving me hope for intelligent, emotional, powerful genre cinema. But uh, it's interesting what you're saying because I, I listened to the commentary um, on the Criterion Stagecoach from Jim Kitz's uh, uh, film historian, and he actually met Ford. And on it he said that he once asked him what drew him to the man who shot Liberty Valance's story, and Ford said, I liked it. Two people, simple people, in a kitchen. And I think that says so much that he, that was the foundation, if that is true, what he, if that is actually what drew him to it, that was the foundation he started with, and all the motifs and the themes and the statements come later. And that's, I think, what makes the film still so powerful to this day. But it does come out of simplicity and it comes out of good writing and it comes out of understanding that, um, you know, all simplicity, all supposed simplicity in humanity has something behind it that is worth exploring. And all philosophies and political opinions and whatever can all be dissected broken down and and kind of put back together to give individuals a more wide-ranging thing and 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 a wide-ranging personality that isn't just one side or the other that's why this movie needs to be reissued every year till people start to understand it oh and one other point is that one of the biggest things in the movie for me personally, from my uh, uh, certain opinions about 
the world is the whole education thing and the understanding that education is the backbone to uh you know a more open tolerant society to some extent um and a lot of both what i'm frustrated with with the the media and also frustrated with obviously the lack of uh, uh funding and and intelligent discourse when it comes to education is that without it without that educate without that backbone without people understanding not only how the country was put together but also just the basic tenets of society and humanity you know we do get lost in divisive nonsense and escapism because what else is there no one's putting out movies that speak to these sort of complex ideas anymore because they worry that midwesterners won't understand them or the flyover states will won't go to see them or whatever it is and that's the arrogance and idiocy of the studios you know in the same way that the news and the media won't cover ambiguous stories because they can't put it in a soundbite or they can't you know put a smiley you know squirrel on a skateboard story at the end of it or whatever like they they only want to put out this thing is good this thing is bad you know and and that's uh, to detriment and that's why i love in this movie the discussion about what education means to a society does the western sort of begins to die off around this period in america while it did see somewhat of a resurgence in the 70s that it kind of goes hand in hand with america's globalization because I, I remember you know studying national cinema and identity in university and you know the tutor going uh, saying america does not have a national cinema and thinking about that and going oh yeah you're kind of right because hollywood doesn't necessarily make films specifically for america whereas australia makes films specifically for australians or you know iran makes films especially for iranians or the french make films especially for the french america makes films to be sent all over the world and that kind of strips out elements of your own identity and your your own language and your own culture and so it becomes this streamlined bullet that just tears through everything else Nowadays, that's truer than ever. I mean, I think back in the 60s and 70s, there's certainly more movies being made specifically to analyze and uh, kind of expose uh, uh, America to itself. But certainly more recently, there isn't. But if you think of sort of the, the early movie brat movies uh, of Scorsese de Palma, but or you also look at the Westerns. And, um, and what's interesting is sort of by the end of the 60s, you get these movies that are meant to be commentaries on you know, the the disillusionment that people see in the American dream and, uh, you know, the, the fractured uh, psyche of America and all the rest of it, when actually something like uh, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance almost says way more than a, an easy rider or whatever about um, the formation of America and the American dream and uh, all the complexities of it than some of the more rebel movies of the late 60s. And that, that definitely comes from, you know, the age of John Ford, where he is someone who is looking back over a huge period of transformation in America that he is able to, you know, even to, to have the bravery to attack his own kind of mythologizing that he has done in the part. And, you know, it's part of the reason why I prefer Prometheus to Alien, because I like to pick fights with people. And I think that Ridley Scott is doing something really interesting in Prometheus in considering the passage of time and transformation. Um, that, yeah, when you get these filmmakers who are able to keep up their strength and to keep up their bravery to be able to make uh, bold films in their old age, you often get something quite remarkable. 
you bring up a good point with uh, one of the things I was saying just about the genre is that the, the, the two genres, you know, sci-fi is always given this genre backstory of, well, sci-fi is a great way to comment on uh, present issues, but with a distance, right? So that we don't have to necessarily feel like we're being preached to. But but actually, Westerns, because they're in the past, also have the same ability. In fact, they're only sort of one or two genres that can really do that. I mean, yes, horror can speak to certain aspects of, of uh, modern society. Of course it can. And there are certainly uh, um, uh, action, exploitation, and gangster films that that secretly underneath the layers are commenting on something that's going on in society. But sci-fi being often a futuristic genre and Western obviously being a historical genre have the ability within the distance to analyze not only the past, but also the future in, within their context. And that, that, that makes them a fascinating genre that I should definitely really watch a lot more of. When you were talking about contemporary filmmakers not really, you know, having those kind of strengths and abilities, um, a filmmaker I thought of who is actually an Australian, which is, you know, the outsider looking inwards is often uh, a lot more, uh, you know, gifted with a lot more perspective and insight, uh, Andrew Dominic, um, who made Chopper and a film that is, very close. I think it has a lot of associations with Levy Valance, um, the assassination of Jesse James by the coward Robert Ford. But he's, you know, the killing, killing them softly, being a, you know, a film that is all themes and motifs and subtext and surtext. But he's also, he's done a Western and he also did a sci-fi, The Rover, which is absolutely one of my favorite Australian films of recent years, which has a lot of overlap with the Western as well. So he's, he's a fascinating director who's kind of, use those elements to bring you know to make a lot of contemporary uh, commentary all right guys let's go ahead and take a break and we're going to play a pair of interviews the first is with professor kenneth hall who's the author of an upcoming book about professions in westerns and the second is with professor joseph mcbride the author of searching for john ford and just for fun we might hear a little bit of john ford himself along the way and we'll be back with all that right after these brief messages Hello, I'm Mugumbo, and I am a potaholic. I have been known to consume four or five of these underground commentaries a day, salivating for the next episodes. I have tweeted the creators of these shows and offered sexual favors for validation and conversation. I put these hosts high on a pedestal, but for some reason, I can never climax until I listen to the traumatic cinematic show. What is the difference, you ask? The Traumatic Cinematic Show has my own self-defecating voice on it. Nothing gets me off faster than thinking about myself. So when you are sitting around nude, pleasuring yourself to the voices of strangers, check out TraumaticCinematic.com, because we'll give you a reach around. You can also find us on TraumaticCinematic.Podomatic.com. I'm on the internet. Here are just a few of the things famous people say about the After Movie Diner podcast. Hello, I'm Dame Judy Dench, and when I'm not dusting the submarine, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast. You know, for the film reviews. Hello, I'm Eric Stoltz, and when I'm not taking Uncle to the pictures, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the interviews. Hello, I'm Lewis Gossett Jr., and when I'm not trampolining for peace, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the music. Hello. 
Bernie Taupin here, and when I'm not undermining Venezuela, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the guests. Hello, I'm Celia Imri Stunt Double, and when I'm not wanking for tumours, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast for the comedy. Hi there, I'm Ali Sheedy, and when I'm not taking photographs of bricks, I'm listening to the After Movie Diner podcast, mostly for the pancakes. Yes, that's right. The award-winning After Movie Diner podcast is all things to all people. Find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TalkShoe, Podbean, Facebook, Twitter, and at www.aftermoviediner.com. Let me ask you a question. Are you getting enough? I bet you'd love more, right? Well, adamneed.com wants to give you more with 10 free gifts. First, you'll get a sexy surprise for her. Second, a specially selected toy for him. And third, a little something we know you'll both enjoy. Plus, you'll get six full-length adult movies on DVD. And number 10, free shipping on your entire order. So what do you have to do to get your 10 free gifts? It's not hard. Just go to adamandeve.com and select any one item. It could be an adventurous new toy, sexy piece of lingerie, or anything you desire. Just enter offer code BOOTH at checkout, and you'll get all 10 free gifts. Go check out adamandeve.com today. Select one item and get 10 free gifts, including free shipping, when you enter offer code BOOTH. That's B-O-O-T-H at adamandeve.com. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. I'm always amazed looking at your faculty page and seeing that you have worked in so many different things. We've talked before about John Woo, uh, we've talked a little bit before about your history of working with the Spanish language, and you also have the Westerns in there. You're a man of many talents. Now, I want to talk to you about Westerns tonight specifically, but I want to know first, what got you interested in that field of study? I think it was just, you know, my father sitting around watching John Wayne Westerns and Shane. I remember that when I was a kid, and I just sort of got interested in movies generally and back then this was the 19 oh i don't know 1960s early 60s and you know we didn't have vcrs and all that and if you saw a movie it wasn't necessary and we didn't have a lot of reruns either in repeats and so if you saw a movie when you were a kid sometimes if it impressed you you'd wait for years to see it again you know and so I remember seeing Shane more than once, which was pretty amazing. That started early, and then the more I got into films, the more I stayed interested in that particular genre. You know, so it's just a long, long-term thing. When it comes to your work on the westerns, what kind of uh, approach are you taking when it comes to studying those, and what have you written about the westerns? 
Most of my approach with films is textual criticism. That is, I, I sort of go real closely, very closely into the uh, the text of the film, the script, and the <clears throat> the um, mise-en-scene, the way the actors relate to each other and so forth. And so I guess my approach is uh, sort of a hybrid of, of a kind of double. I was on film and literature, but I'm really trained in literature, you know, <clears throat> in language. I am uh, right now trying to finish up a book that I have forthcoming on several professional characters in film in Westerns. Oh, it's about doctors and lawyers and uh, barbers and engineers and teachers and that sort of thing. You know, the sort of thing that you don't hear about quite as much in discussions of the Western. You hear about lawmen all the time and yeah, it's interesting. I'm thinking as you're talking, we've got a new season of uh, Westworld coming up where people get to play in a Western milieu, or at least they did last season. And it was, I want to go out to the West to be the lawman or to be the outlaw, or there were characters that filled some other roles. You know, I'm thinking of the plainswoman or the prostitute at the saloon, but not necessarily about the dentist, the doctor, the lawyer, any of those kind of characters. When you decided to write about this and, and, and to speak about this before, what was your approach as far as did you start to make a list of like, these are the people I'm going to write about? Or did you just immediately come to, oh, well, there was a very interesting character who wasn't the cowboy, the Indian, the lawman, the outlaw? Yeah, I just started, actually, I just started searching out if there was a prominent character that fit what I was looking for, and then I'd work on that. And I was aware of some characters from some films before that I thought I could work with. <clears throat> so gradually, uh, I just found the sorts of characters that I thought. Um, and there's some interesting ones, sort of very, you know, kind of um, fun ones to deal with. There's a series of, there's some novels about an Irish in, in Montana um, around the 18th, landed in Mile City before it was Mile City when it was still a village, sort of. And they don't have a sheriff, so he doubles as the doctor and the sheriff as he's training physician. So as he puts it, he plugs them and patches them up. And it's pretty clever. He's also married to an Assiniboine woman. So there's this sort of mixed um, race uh, motif, you know, in these novels. And they're, and they're, they're by Richard Wheeler. He's a very good, you know, Western novelist. So I'm, that, that's an example. His name is Tool. And there were four of these novels. So I started reading those. And then when I would get involved in something like that, sometimes I would email a contact that I knew or another, a writer that I knew and say, do you know of any other novels or stories of this sort? And some people put me on to other sources. See, so It's just that nobody's ever kind of delved into fairly systematically in anything like this. And the book also has to do with, to some extent anyway, with characters like that in, in Mexican revolutionary fiction, because that has some um, relationship to Westerns. And sometimes you see comparisons. Looking at film, who are some of the characters that stood out for you that were in those? I, I imagine that for you, they had to be in a main position, and it's really tough for me to think of too many characters. Well, there's certainly there are doctors, you know, and those aren't always very talk, talked about very much. I mean, 
um, Doc Boone and Stagecoach, you know, um, but sometimes unorthodox, un- unorthodox roles, like a doctor in a movie called The Command, who uh, is an army doctor and takes a hand in stopping, a, sort of putting a, putting a halt to a war with, uh, with the tribe. And, and there's a veterinarian who does much the same thing in another West. So across some examples I thought were interesting. Um, in um, The Ten Star with Henry Fonda, if you've seen that, with um, Anthony Perkins, uh, there's a, a doctor character played by John McIntyre who's sort of a civilizer. He's sort of an old, you know, old wise doctor. He lives in a town and he sort of represents the cement that holds the civilization together in the town. He has a lot of institutional memory and so on. So I just think characters like that are kind of interesting. Well, I want to talk to you about The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance because there are multiple characters in there that aren't the typical cowboy lawman role. And I'm thinking, of course, about the newspaper man and then the lawyer who kind of doubles as a newspaper man sometimes in the form of Jimmy Stewart. Did you write about that one as well? Yes, I have some material about that, about um, um, about Peabody, you know, the journal, the um, editor, uh, Evan O'Brien, and some references to Rance Stoddard, the lawyer. They're sort of scattered through the book. Um, the reason I'm not dealing with that, that particular film extensively in the book is that I already worked with it quite a bit in um, like the newspaper men articles and so forth. And I, I can't, I don't want to duplicate what I did already, you know, but yeah, you know, and Rance Stoddard is a, a really interesting character because the Stewart character, because he's, he's a lawyer and then he's a politician. And for a while he's a waiter and he's not a very good one. And, um, you know, he's sort of a journalist. He's not a very good one. And he tries to be a teacher. Remember that? And he, he sort of plays the school marm in the town and so forth. And, so yeah, that's an interesting film. But you know, it has uh, liber- that 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 film, very elegiac film, you know, from 1962, and it's it's a it's a characteristic John Ford film in a lot of ways. I mean, it has his sort of stock characters in it. They've just been sort of revamped. I mean, people have pointed out other other critics than than I, you know, have pointed out that the Peabody character, the the editor in the old town is just sort of an of a, of another version of the drunken doctor from stagecoach you know he's drunk he's a drunk too right same sort of thing and 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 so you know it's not it's not that ford is sort of innovating using these characters he's sort of recycling his favorite stock characters in some ways and um of course in a real interesting way yeah, I didn't think about all of those different professions that Jimmy Stewart is. And yeah, I can't really think of one that he is great at. I mean, maybe he's a really good politician, but then at the end, or yeah, I guess the beginning and the end, since it's a wraparound, he's kind of trying to throw his whole political career away. Yeah, he seems to be sort of uh, chagrined about the sort of things he's done, right? You know, being a hypocrite and so forth. And I mean, that, 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 that's one of the things that fascinates me about that film is that framing device, you know, the, the train coming, you know, it has a frame and a framed narrative and so on. And that's an, that's an interesting device narratively because it, it allows the filmmaker, scriptwriter filmmaker to, um, cast some doubt on his own recollection, on the recollections he has. 
I, as we're talking about that, I'm also thinking of the guys who are on the train, the actual porters and things that are on the train. And I'm sure that as you're writing about Westerns and as the Iron Horse or yeah, right. As the Iron Horse comes in, mm-hmm. you have to start thinking about those people who are also coming west as part of the actual machinery that brings people to the west. Well, actually, in my book, I've got some material about engineers and railroad detectives and um, other sorts of characters. I hadn't really thought of the porters too much, kind of think of it, but I guess we'll see. Yeah, and those porters, I mean, some of the few African-American characters that manage to just sneak in there sometimes. And, you know, as you know, obviously, uh, in earlier Westerns, sometimes in pretty demeaning roles, you know, or pretty stock roles, although although that's not always the case. Sometimes they manage to stand out in a, in a less um, stereotyped way. Like I'm kind of thinking about a film that I put in the book that's sort of not a, a typical Western. Uh, one one author, one scholar called it sort of a Southern, you know, a, like an example of a Western set in the South. Um, it has Joel McRae. It's called Stars in My Crown. It occasionally shows up on... I don't know, TCM and places like that. It's uh, directed by Jacques Tourneur, who did uh, Out of the Past and Cat People and Curse of the Cat People and, you know, worked with Val Luton. He was a Frenchman. Um, And so it's kind of an interesting film for that reason alone. It's a, you know, it's a Western or sort of a Western uh, done by an immigre. Um, And it's about a, Joel McRae plays a, a, a preacher who's pretty good with a gun. He doesn't ever have to use it very much. He pulls it out once. And it's set in post-Reconstruction South somewhere. You know, they're not very specific about it. And um, it's about the typical sort of, you know, a, a, a somebody who's doing land grabbing and trying to take away uh, land from settlers. But it has um, two doctor characters, a t- a pre- that preacher, a school teacher, and it has a very, to me, a very interesting African-American role because there's an older man who's very well-respected and liked in the community among a lot of people. And Ed Begley and his um, Klansmen are trying to take his land away. And he, he, they get into direct conflict with uh, the Joel McRae character. It's an interesting, interesting movie. When you wrote about newspaper men, what did you kind of discover as far as the way that those roles would either be similar or different, the way that they were portrayed? Many times the newspaper man role, sometimes a newspaper woman role, is the sort of characteristic of fighting journalist in the in the West stereotype, you know, who's fighting for justice, like, for instance, in Fort Worth with Randall Scott, uh, town builder, you know. And most of the time, that's what they fall into that category. I think of the newspaperman character from something like The Unforgiven and the way that they are kind of the journalers of the Old West and then taking that line of bullshit from the Richard Harris character and spinning these yarns. So it's almost the, the chronicler of the mythos. Yeah, the dime novelist thing, you mean Beauchamp, the, the Saul Rubinac character. Yeah, yeah. There's a good, there's a good bit of that too. You know, sort of the dime novel, um, um, tail spinner. You know, Ned Buntline type character. 
Um, and oddly enough, that sh- that seems to show up more in um, fiction than it does in film. I mean, from what I've found, there are some characters like that in films, but I've seen that more in novels um, or in short stories uh, than I have in films, just in working on it. But yeah, that's a good example. In The Shootist, you know, the, the um, John Wayne movie, there's this, you know, these sort of local kind of legend gatherers and, and all that that sort of uh, are fascinated by J.D. books and so on. And they may not be professional journalists, but, you know, they're sort of acting like myth builders, right? I wonder if the novelists are more okay with the idea of tearing down the legend as opposed to film, which wants to play into the mythos so much more and wants to create these larger-than-life characters more often, I would think. Yeah, I think that's part of it. And I think another part of it is probably that in the, you know, in a novel or a short story, they're dealing with a printed word, and so is the journalist character that they're working with. And they it, it, that then it sort of seems to be an easier leap, I suppose. Um, and, um, I don't know. I, I just think I found more variety in the, in the, in the, you know, fiction, printed fiction and so forth. Um, there's this, there was a series, it's it not, not a TV series. There was a, um, a novel series, uh, that came out for a couple of years, a few years back in the, what the seventies, I suppose, um, called the Derby man, that was kind of fun, particularly the first one. And then the first one was called The Derby Man. And it's a novel about a an enterprising journalist, you know, go west, young man. He comes from back east. I think it was New York, if I remember right. And he comes out to the west to set up shop and be a newspaper man. The fun of it is that he's a tenderfoot, or he appears to be a tenderfoot, which usually is a stereotype, you know, like the Ransom Stoddard, right? He's not able to defend himself physically, and he doesn't know the ways of the West, and people like Liberty Balance step all over him, right? What they find out is that this derby man is an accomplished boxer, and he's physically rock hard. So he gets in these saloon fights and just busts the hell out of people, you know. And then he goes off and and tries to do this journalist stuff. It's lots of fun. And so I I think writers maybe feel, you know, fiction writers maybe feel, as you say, a little freer to play around with the stereotypes like that. Well, let's talk about Ransom Stoddard, the lawyer. I mean, obviously, you can look at him trying to come out and tame the Wild West. Is that the role that lawyers typically play in fiction and film when it comes to Westerns? There are cases where, you know, that like legal cases about uh, Jesse James or maybe the, the, you know, the defense lawyer. Have you, have you seen The Return of Frank James where Henry Hall gets up there and, you know, very florid and, and major cop, you know, and defends uh, Frank James and the courtroom and all that sort of thing. And that's not exactly that's not town taming at all. It's more like myth-making by the lawyer, right? I mean, they play varied roles. I honestly, I have, when I've been working on those sorts of characters, I've sort of de-emphasized working on lawyers. I've done a few pieces in the, you know, sections in the book on lawyer characters, but I didn't want to do too much of that because then I'd be doing every judge and every, you know, see what I mean? So I've sort of picked and chosen 
there are some interesting there are some interesting uh, characters like that in more in fiction again than in film that I found. Uh, now Ransom Stoddard though that that's the thing about the framing device though you see he he tells the story you know you remember to the you know uh, Carlton Young uh, Scott the um, editor in Shinbone in the you know early 1900s is what it looks like they've got phones and things and, and he tells the story about how he came to Shinbone uh, on the same stagecoach you know 30 years ago. Most of the film is that framed narrative that he's telling. And since we know that he told a lie or let a lie stand there for 30 years, how do we know about how much of what he's telling is true? Yeah, you're right. And then when you think that he says that uh, the newspapermen fired him and we never actually see that in the uh, the, the inner story, that also throws his narrative in doubt. Plus, there's another frame story within the frame story because, you know, Donovan tells him how he shot Liberty Balance and so on. So you have this lawyer character. He's very good with words and he's a senator and a politician. He's very good with words. And he tells this story and then he tells a story within the story where he's been shown to be a liar. So it's, you know, the liar paradox thing. And. It's so it's it's a very complex film. I remember uh, that's that's another film, by the way, that I remember seeing. I remembered vaguely seeing when I was about eight years old because I saw it in the theater. And all I remembered about it because I was about eight years old for many years was a guy in a coffin. That's all I remembered. And uh, then it became available. You know, a lot of these films just were not easy to see back in the sixties and the seventies. I mean, just. It just was not easy. And so the first time I saw it, I, yeah, right, there's Tom Donaldson in the coffin, right? But I had not uh, remembered. So that's another film that stayed with me for a long time. And there must be a reason for that, because I saw a lot of Westerns and all sorts of things when I was growing up. And I remembered certain ones, you know, they made an impression on me. As I mentioned, Shane was one, and that was another. I didn't see films like Rio Bravo in Red River until I was, I don't know, maybe in late high school or college. Those early examples impressed me for different reasons. When you're doing your research, um, or even before that, who are the characters, the the more unusual ones that stand out for you? Uh, you talked about the Derby Man, you talked about the the uh, Patch and Plug Man, um, but who are some of the the more outrageous cases for you? Well, I don't, I don't necessarily know about outrageous. I mean, they're, they're just some that I think are interesting or sort of fun. You know, uh, there's another novel series with a character named Sharp with an E on the end. And he's an accomplished concert pianist who um, is sort of hiding out in the West because for personal reasons, not hiding. He's just sort of embittered and he's in, you know, jaded and so it's sort of a, a of a of a twist on the don't shoot the piano player. You know, he's a an accomplished concert pianist who makes his living playing in saloons, and he also happens to be um, a very fast gun. So uh, he tries to stay away from violence, but he gets drawn into it over and over again. Now, th- those are those are nice little fun takes. It's not not something to take pr- pr- particularly seriously, but. 
nice thing that it was nice that uh, that a fiction writer thought of such a thing. As far as I was concerned, did you find most of these in American westerns or in foreign westerns? Mostly so far in American westerns, but that's just because I haven't investigated foreign westerns as much. Um, I, again, I've kind of I don't know. I've kind of limited myself some because I just didn't want to open the door and start watching every Italian Western, I thought it would be endless, but occasionally I will come across something. So I don't know that there's any dividing line there or any particular fondness among American Westerns for such characters that are not in other fields. I just decided to limit my scope. That's all. No, I can understand. That's a rabbit hole that you probably don't want to go down. Something like that. I mean, I just thought, well, if I'm ever going to finish this book, I'm going to have to limit some for instance i'm not necessarily reading entire series where like these sharp novels i'm not necessarily going to read all of them you know and so forth i usually read samples of different things there's an interesting little series with a character named dancy uh surname if i remember right by james best about a very wealthy guy who comes west and he's a professional gunsmith and salesman and then he gets involved in all sorts of, you know, daring do and so on and so on. Gunsmith characters are not that common either. I can think of about two right off the top of my head from Western films, and they're in the book. Well, tell me more about the book. When is it slated to come out? <laughs> if I can get it finished, the, the the deadline is supposed to be May 15th, and I'm getting close. So it's supposed to be coming out from McFarland and... I've been pushing the deadline deadline back, um, you know, repeatedly, but I think I'll probably make it this time. So if I get it in May 15, then hopefully it'd be maybe next spring or end of the year. Very cool. And then do you even know what you're going to be working on next, or are you just full steam ahead on this? I've had this uh, on in the back burner for a long time, another project that, I'm trying to revive. So actually, just before you called, I was just kind of working at it, which is on, you know, the Abrams TV series. Yeah. So I was just rewatching all my fringe Blu-rays to try to get started on it again. And so that would be the next thing. So we'll see. was the first John Ford film you remember seeing? The first Ford film I saw was on television. It was The Last Hurrah. I was living in Milwaukee. Uh, that's where I grew up. And uh, I was particularly pleased. Uh, I mean, partly being Irish-American, it's just full of Irish uh, uh, ethnic uh, humor and sentiment. But there was a priest in the film played by Ken Curtis, who was Ford's son-in-law, who's in The Searchers and other films. And uh, he mentions he's from, he went to Marquette, which was Marquette University. I, I was going to Marquette University High School school. This was before I went to the high school, but my mother had been to Marquette, so I thought, oh, this is cool. Ford is mentioning the Milwaukee connection here. And Spencer Tracy was from my high school, actually. He uh, he, uh, he attended Marquette Academy, it was called then, with Pat O'Brien, who was also in Ford Films. He was in The Last Hurrah, too. 
It was funny, around 1964, or 63, I think it was, Pat O'Brien published an autobiography, and I read it, and I was really thrilled to find out that he and Tracy had gone to my high school, and I told one of our priests very excitedly, and he frowned, and he said, Spencer Tracy, uh, he's shacked up with that Hepburn woman, and he's never given a penny to the school. I thought that was kind of appalling, given that he's our greatest alumnus, but... Uh, that was the attitude back then. The general point is that Ford loved to feature different ethnic groups in his films because America is made up of uh, so many different ethnic groups and immigrant uh, people from immigrant backgrounds. And <clears throat> that meant a lot to him, especially because his own parents were immigrants from Ireland. And he grew up in a multi-ethnic neighborhood in Portland. Uh, they had uh, Jewish people, they had French Canadians, German Americans, uh, African Americans, and all, all of them were, were friends. And so he was, uh, he features that in his films. And this was unusual at the time he was making films. A lot of American filmmakers ignored minority groups like Howard Hawks. You'd be hard pressed to find more than a handful of black people in his, his work, for example. And uh, a lot of filmmakers just took a kind of white attitude, white Protestant attitude, but Ford being a minority member, Irish Catholic, growing up in a wasp town, had always had a great sympathy and empathy for uh, for minorities of all kinds, and so he he features them in his films at a time when it was not fashionable to do so, and does so with affection. Sometimes they're stereotypical, but uh, he's pretty sophisticated in playing with the stereotypes for humor as well, and... Um, that makes the films, to me, quite quite valuable and interesting uh, in, in ways that most Hollywood films from that era were not. And he also was <clears throat> ahead of his time by being proud of his roots, which uh, I'm old enough to remember when we were kids in the 50s, the predominant attitude was the melting pot. America's a melting pot, and you're supposed to basically all sort of homogenize yourselves by melting down your ethnic characteristics and uh, not talking about them too much and just becoming Americans, whatever that is. And Ford was never subscribing to that. He always thought you should proclaim who you are and be proud of your ancestry. And it wasn't until Alex Haley's Roots came out in the early 70s that that became fashionable and generally accepted. And now everybody studies their ancestry and uh, proudly proclaims who they who they came from. And uh, I think that's a healthy trend. And it, you know, it's a very timely topic today with all the debate about immigration and xenophobia and, and uh, all, all those fraught issues are still not resolved, of course. Well, I know you were a film fan growing up. And I'm curious, when did you kind of realize that a John Ford film was a John Ford film. It was th that that was a a mark of quality and differentiation from a lot of t run of the mill westerns. I really wasn't too aware of Ford until I went to college. I went to the University of Wisconsin Madison, which was a great place for film studies in those days, and I became aware of Ford. I saw the Grapes of Wrath. I remember and uh, was impressed. But the, the film that got me really excited about him was Ford Apache, which I saw over Christmas break, December 1967. I came home to Milwaukee for Christmas. I saw it on television, and I was just uh, astounded by that film. Such a revisionist take in American history, and so uh, so rich. It's like a, a novel on film. That got me hooked on Ford, uh, and. I've been studying him ever since, but before that, I was um, 
like most kids in the 50s, a big Western fan. Uh, we all went to see Westerns in the theaters. Uh, you know, we'd go on Saturdays and see matinees, and there'd be a Western or a sci-fi movie or a monster movie or something of that sort in cartoons. And So I saw all kinds of new Westerns in the 50s, and uh, I don't remember those seeing any Ford films. Like, I didn't see The Searchers at the time. My friend Jerry Perry, who's also a Ford scholar, was the head of the curve. Uh, he had seen the searchers in New York when he was a kid and was telling me how great it was. And, you know, I really didn't know much about it until he told me. But I saw all kinds of other Westerns. Every day after school, there was a show called Foreman Tom's Jamboree at four o'clock, and I would come home and watch that, and there'd be a Western on. And I was a little kid in those days. I was small, and I've since grown to six foot two and a half, but I was getting beaten up a lot by the other uh, kids in my school. And so I was for the underdog instinctively uh, from childhood. And I began noticing in these Westerns that the Indians were always getting uh, beaten, for one thing, and then they were, you know, vilified. And one, so I kept thinking, you know, I'd love to see a Western where the Indians win for a change. And I came home one day and I saw a film on Foreman Tom's show that where the Indians won, and I was so thrilled. I was just ecstatic. And I don't know what it was. It could have been Fort Apache because there aren't too many other films in which uh, the Indians win. That's one of the things that really thrilled me about it, that a takeoff on the Custer story, although Ford had tried to make a film on Custer called Glory Hunter, which was very revisionist uh, in portraying him as a kind of... um, a maniac, basically, as he was. They didn't really want that in those days. So he, he wound up doing the film in 1947-48 uh, as a fictionalized account with Henry Fonda playing a character called uh, Owen Thursday. But it's very similar to the Custer story. And the Indians are, are sympathetic. They're treated totally sympathetically, and, and they, they win the battle at the end, and you're glad that they win. They're the heroes of the film. So uh, that's what got me excited all over again about Ford. So I may have, uh, you know, I was I was primed to like Westerns. We all love Westerns. You know, Roger Corman, I remember in, in the 70s, said um, kids no longer are into Westerns, they're into science fiction films. He, he was onto that right away when Star Wars came out, which is heavily influenced by the searchers. He said they're not really interested in the West, but they're interested in, in outer space. Of course, we were interested in outer space as well, but unfortunately, uh, and this is true today, a lot of people no longer care or study much about our history. So the Western has become kind of a passe genre to some extent. But um, when you study the history of the Western, there's a good book by Scott Simon on, on the origins of the Western and how popular they always were. But he says even from the beginning, uh, people were writing obituaries for the Westerns as, as early as uh, the 1910s and thereabouts, saying the genre is played out or it's, you know, it's finished or whatever. So they always keep doing that. And then occasionally a film comes along that gets people excited all over again. And that still happens once in a while with, say, Clint Eastwood's Unforgiven and Dances with Wolves or a few films like that, that suddenly people think, oh, these are these are really great films. But they, we have to be realistic. They don't capture the public imagination the way they used to. You can't really talk about John Ford without talking about John Wayne, who apparently Ford even managed to give his name. Is that true? Not totally true. Um, there was, I mean, there's some debate about that. That Wayne was Marion Michael Morrison was his birth name, and he was uh, a student at USC, football player, pre-law student actually, and. 
Ford was friendly with the football coach at USC, and he took on some of the players over the summer to be uh, laborers, prop boys, et cetera, on the Fox lot, and Wayne was one of them. Ward Bond was another. You know, when Wayne was being groomed for stardom, Ford and Raw Walsh soon realized that this good-looking big young guy had some potential, and uh, Walsh uh, put him in The Big Trail, which was his first starring film in 1930, and uh, they renamed him John Wayne, and um, apparently the Wayne part came from Mad Anthony Wayne, and uh, Ford may have had something to do with that, and Walsh had something to do with that, and they, you know, they kind of have disagreed to some extent on who really discovered this guy, although Ford gave him his first film appearances. And then um, The Big Trail is a good film, but it's it was a huge flop. It was a widescreen epic western made during the depths of the Depression, and people didn't go to it, partly because there were few theaters that could play the widescreen format. And uh, so Wayne was stuck in B-Westerns throughout most of the 30s. They're fun movies, but they were made very fast, uh, you know, like one week, and they were uh, formulaic. And I mean, some of them are very entertaining. There's one I saw in which the entire plot is John Wayne rides into a town, and there's a horse that's being hanged for murder because <laughs> it kicked its its owner to death or something, and they're about to hang it, and Wayne rescues the horse, and uh, the rest of the film is the townspeople trying to chase him. And then at the end, they realize he's right. It's, it's kind of a adorable plot, actually, but it's only about an hour long. He was even a singing cowboy in one of those films. They dubbed his voice. Ford wouldn't give him parts all through the 30s, and, you know, it's hard to know why, because Ford didn't articulate it, but he apparently was mad that Wayne went off with Raul Walsh, and Walsh uh, made him a star. Uh, Ford was uh, jealous of that, and uh, didn't even talk to Wayne for a few years, and Wayne was very frustrated and unhappy, and Finally, they started talking, and Ford began saying, I should do some film with you, and eventually he gave him Stagecoach, and that's what elevated him from B-movies back to A-movies. Well, what was their working relationship like once they became immersed after Stagecoach? Well, um, I I interviewed um, Claire Trevor, who played the leading lady in Stagecoach, and she was telling me how Ford was quite harsh with Wayne, because he had, she said he had a lot of bad habits from those B-movies, and uh, Ford would do things like Wayne would move his mouth or his head too much, and uh, Ford would grab him by the jaw and would say, God damn it, you don't act with your jaw, you act with your eyes. You know, and he would, he would force him to be more um, quiet, and uh, part of what's really good about that performance is the Ringo Kid has a lot of, looks that are very eloquent. He doesn't say a lot. Ford made the point later to one of his colleagues that the guy said, how did you get John Wayne to be so good? And Ford said, go in there uh, to screen the film and take a notepad and write down the number of times Wayne talks. And the guy came out and said he talks, you know, 15 times or 20 times or whatever. And Ford said, well, uh, see, that's that's what I did. He's good with dialogue, but he, um, a lot of his acting is nonverbal and very eloquent. And uh, people tend not to realize that that's a big part of the essence of film acting. When, when Brooklyn came out a few years ago, uh, Saoirse Ronan, I remember some critic wrote, well, she's okay, but she only acts with her face. And I thought, wow, that critic has no understanding of film acting at all. I mean, her fa- facial expressions is so subtle and uh, eloquent in that film. And uh, wow, I mean, if you think that just delivering lines is what film acting is about, you're in the wrong profession. 
But um, Wayne developed uh, as as a good actor th- with Ford uh, gradually. Ford, I don't, I don't think, had total respect for him until after he did Red River for Howard Hawks. And Hawks told me a story that people have often repeated that um, is self-serving like a lot of Hawks' stories, but it's probably true that when Ford saw Red River, where Wayne plays Tom Dunson, who's an anti-hero, tough, uh, mean guy, Ford said, I never knew the big son of a bitch could act. And uh, what makes it convincing was he immediately put him into Shoe Wear Yellow Ribbon, where he plays an older man who's only, uh, I think, uh, 35 at the time. And uh, he plays a man who's about to retire from the cavalry, and he's wonderful in the film and very convincing as an older man and very uh, beautiful performance and a richer performance than he had given for uh, Ford before. Like, and they were expendable, which is a great film. Wayne plays the second lead under Robert Montgomery, who's great, but Wayne seems sort of immature both as an actor and as a character. He's supposed to be playing that kind of a guy, kind of a hot-headed, uh, immature fellow, but uh, you get the feeling that Ford was being <clears throat> sort of critical of his callowness in the film and maybe not realizing his full potential. And Ford also had a certain amount of contempt for Wayne for not serving in World War II, Ford was spent the war with the Navy and the OSS and um, had a very uh, wide-ranging, uh, valiant you know, war service covering the war in uh, films, but exposing himself to danger quite a lot. And Wayne stayed home in Hollywood and made a lot of money and became a bigger star, like some people did. And he didn't have to go to war because he was a married man in his 30s with children, but um, a lot of other people did. Uh, like Jimmy Stewart and Clark Gable and uh, many other Hollywood stars, Henry Fonda. And so Wayne kept saying, well, you know, when I finish the next picture, I'll enlist or whatever. And Ford was trying to get him in his OSS unit, and Wayne always had an excuse. So Wayne, Ford made some pretty scathing remarks about him in letters to his wife and things like that. So when he did, uh, they were expendable. There was a scene in which Montgomery and Wayne have to salute the commanding officer early in the film. Uh, they were in front of a, like a hundred people in Florida at a naval base, and uh, Ford said, "Oh God damn it, Duke! Can't you at least uh, salute in a way that makes it look like you're a navy officer?" And uh, which is really unforgivable. And Wayne walked off the set for the only time in his life he was so humiliated and Robert Montgomery who'd been the president of the Screen Actors Guild came over to Ford's chair and put his arms around the sides of the chair and looked Ford in the eyes and said don't you ever talk to an actor like that again and Ford started crying and apologized so he was quite rough on Wayne and um, Claire Trevor said he would say things at stagecoach like uh, god damn it uh, you walk like a goddamn fairy you know things like that and the, the irony there is he modeled that distinctive walk he had on Ford's walk. You know, they're kind of ro- rolling hips and stuff. And some, somebody said it was like the walk you have when you're on a boat. And Ford was, you know, had a yachtsman and all that, and, and uh, the kind of rolling, graceful walk. So he was imitating Ford a lot. And he also, at night, would get coached by Paul Fix, who was a veteran Western actor, and he helped show him how to walk and talk. And... One of the raps against Wayne, which is totally unfair, and and I'm I've written about this a lot because Wayne is my favorite film actor, and he was even in the fifties. People say he just played himself, and again, that betrays the lack of knowledge of what film acting is. Stars 
play themselves because that's what we want to see. We want to see Steve McQueen or Will Smith or, um, uh, you know, whoever the star is, we go because we like their persona. Within those personas, there can be a lot of inflection, but there's a certain familiarity as well. And so you, you wouldn't be a star if you were different every time out, although in, in modern times, it's kind of considered fashionable to be able to transform yourself a lot, and those are the roles that tend to win Oscars. So we tend to undervalue people who create a strong persona, and that's what Wayne did. And But Wayne was complimented when he was making the shootest his last film. Somebody said, well, you're so natural on screen. He kind of got frustrated and said, no, natural. You know, you have no idea how hard it is to be natural on the screen. He said he created a persona. He created an image bit by bit. And part of it was the walk. Part of it was the talk. I, I watched him shoot for two days on the shootest and got to interview him. And he said, uh, I, I don't have any secrets of acting except when I talk, I pause in the middle of the line so that people don't look away. And then at the end of the line, I don't pause so you, so you don't look away. And that hesitation in the middle is, is kind of a trademark of Wayne, uh, which I've always liked. And it, I, I think one thing it does, and I don't know if he planned this, but it, it makes his character seem more vulnerable, less macho. And that gives him a certain dimension of a human dimension that's, you know, uh, makes his strong characters seem more, more vulnerable, more human. And uh, so Wayne had a lot of skill as an actor, and, and Ford really taught him a lot of it, and Hawks as well, and other people, but Ford especially. And he said he hung on every word John Ford said. And But Ford was kind of abusive toward him throughout his career. He would he would rag him a lot, and he would kind of bully him. And, but Wayne put up with it, and, you know, I don't think he would have put up with it from anybody else. And with other directors, he was more... Uh, bossy and controlling because he was kind of a frustrated director himself. He he wanted to be a director for a long time. And he finally directed The Alamo, which is a fairly good film, kind of clumsy, but a very heartfelt personal film. And But he's not a John Ford. Hank Worden, who plays Old Mose in The Searchers, um, was in The Alamo. And I said, what is the difference between Ford and Wayne as directors? And he made a very interesting comment. He said, well, you know, uh, Wayne thought the way to direct people was to yell at everybody. And he said Ford would do that sometimes, but sometimes he wouldn't. And he said, with me, I'm not the kind of actor that, that likes to be yelled at. I get tense and I freeze up. Ford knew that, so he treated me very gently. But Wayne yelled at me, and, and so he said, I don't think I'm very good in the Alamo because I was tense. And I thought that's that's a very good insight into, you know, uh, Wayne just didn't have the skills in handling people that Ford did. But, you know, he's better in the Ford and Hawks films than he is for for most other directors. And so when he, when he worked with sort of second-rate directors, he would often kind of semi take over the direction kind of you know tell the director what to do a lot and give instructions to the other actors and the cameraman and even on hawks films he would do that to some extent and peter bogdanovich was on the set of uh, hawks film and saw wayne doing that and he said to hawks well how could you how could you let wayne do so much directing and hawks said well you know i think he's doing it right and if i didn't agree with him i'd correct him and but he said we also see eye to eye so much i don't have to say very much to him you know when was the first time you met John Ford? Well, I met John Ford in 1970. I was writing a book on him already. Um, 
I did a book on Orson Welles when I was in college at the University of Wisconsin from 66 to 70, well, 1970, I finished it. And so I was still finishing the Welles book, but I I had begun working on a book on Ford as well with Michael Wilmington, who was a friend of mine at, at school there. And I thought Ford is such a big subject, you know, I wasn't sure I could do it all myself, so I, I brought in my friend Mike, and that was a good idea, because Mike was an actor, for one thing, and I had directed him in a play and a film, and he really knew so much about acting. I learned most of what I know about acting from Mike, for example, and also you know a lot of the complex themes of the films that helped to have two, two heads working on them. So in the summer of 70, I decided I wanted to interview Ford, and I asked for an interview, and he didn't respond, so I called him from the uh, cafeteria at the Wisconsin State Journal in Madison where I was a newspaper reporter and I got him on the phone and he was very cordial and um, picked up the letter and apologized that he hadn't replied to it and uh, saw that my name was McBride and he said, um, uh, you know, uh, I tell you to go to hell except you have the proper ethnic background, so come on out. And so I went to Hollywood in, in August of 1970 and the first week I was in Hollywood, I interviewed John Ford and Jean Renoir on the same day, and then I I met Orson Welles and Peter Bogdanovich, and Orson Welles put me in a film, The Other Side of the Wind. By the end of the week, I was working as an actor for Orson Welles, and I'm still working as an actor for Orson Welles. That film is currently being finished as we're speaking, and... Um, I, I was in it for six years. I wasn't an actor, but Wells put me in the film playing kind of a spoof of myself as an earnest young film critic. It's a satire of Hollywood, so he has a lot of people playing versions of themselves. And uh, the odd thing is, recently I've done some looping of my lines from 47 years ago, which is a very strange experience. Some of the sound needed some work because it was, you know, like we were in a car interviewing John Houston and the wind was blowing and so we needed to do better sound recording and I got to improve my line ratings which was a rare treat uh, especially the first day I was in the film I, I didn't think my line ratings were very good and we didn't change the dialogue but I, I got to uh, work on the film again uh, so anyway that week I, I interviewed and met my three favorite directors also Hitchcock I had written him asking for an interview in the hotel I was at he, he had called and said come on over and I didn't get the message until too late so this was an amazing week and I, I kind of naively thought every week in Hollywood would be like this and I didn't realize this was the pinnacle of my Hollywood experience. You have written two books on Ford. I'm curious why the the two and what are the differences between them? Well, the first book was a critical study. Ford was uh, very unfashionable at the time. This was in the late 60s, um, early 70s during the Vietnam War, and uh, Ford was considered old hat. He had um, uh, made Seven Women, which I think is a great film, his last feature in 1966, and uh, but it bombed at the box office, and a lot of the American critics were very um, disrespectful of the film. It did well in foreign countries, but he had kind of lost his American audience, as Andrew Serres pointed out. His Ford was conscious that his audience was in Europe and Japan and places like that, where they cared about American culture. But Ford was very complex politically, but he was quite patriotic and loved America, and that was not a fashionable attitude at the time, and he was supporting the Vietnam War, which which was uh, fatal for his reputation with the young uh, up-and-coming 
film buffs at the time. I found in doing research on Ford that he actually didn't understand why we were fighting in Vietnam. He wrote a letter to an old friend and said, I don't know why we're there, but you know, it doesn't make any sense to me. But And yet he went to Vietnam in the late 60s to make a film called Vietnam, Vietnam for the U.S. government, a propaganda film, which is kind of embarrassing and it was so simplistic that even the government didn't want to release it, and they belatedly released it after the New York Times said, you know, why aren't they releasing this film? But So he was totally out of fashion. So Mike Wellington and I thought we should write a book to show people what a great director he was and <clears throat> make his films uh, fashionable again, uh, popular again, or at least seen. And one of the things that I found disheartening was I would mention John Ford to people. And, you know, I, I think he's my, you know, the greatest director who ever lived. And people would give me this blank stare, this horrible blank stare. They never even heard of the guy. And to me, that's like, you know, you go to England and you say William Shakespeare and people give you a blank stare like, who's that? I mean, it certainly wouldn't happen over there. But in America, we tend to not recognize our great artists. So we did this critical study and we limited it to 14 very important films. We did long essays on films instead of trying to cover everything, which would have been hard anyway because a lot of the films were hard to see back then. And since since then, a fair number have been rediscovered. So we, we thought, let's do in-depth essays on these films. And, and we did a long introduction. I did an interview. And that, came, that was finished in 1971. And we sold it to the British Film Institute's Cinema 2 series, they had a good series on directors, Cinema 1 and Cinema 2, and my Wells was in Cinema 1. But the Ford book just sat there with a British publisher called Secker and Warburg, and they, they weren't publishing this book. And I actually went to England finally. Today I wouldn't be as you know laid back about it, but I kept writing them, and they kept stalling and stalling. And finally I went, just showed up at their office and said, you know, where's this book? And they agreed to find it an American publisher. They claimed the problem was they couldn't find an American publisher, which is, you know, probably was true, but that wasn't part of the deal that they had to do that. So they finally found the Capo Press, which was a small company that, as the name indicates, published reprints of books. And uh, the book came out in 74, three years after it was written. And I was very disappointed in a sense because Ford had died in the interim and, um, you know, it should have come out earlier. But in 71, when I was finishing that book, I thought, well, there really should be a biography of John Ford because um, he's a, a very enigmatic figure, very hard to figure out as a person. And where do these great films come from? And his personality, he sort of masqueraded as, as a rough and tough cowboy, illiterate cowboy, and he was actually a very well-read, sophisticated man, but he protected himself by covering up his his uh, erudition. That made it hard for people to get a grasp on him, including me. So I thought, well, it, you know, I'll do a biography for it. So I started interviewing people, and I, I wrote to Ford, and I said, um, would you cooperate with a biography? And he said, um, he, he wrote back this very nice handwritten note in 72 saying, Joe, I appreciate your interest, especially the upbeat, kindly way you treated me, but honestly, I'm too old and tired to go for a biog, even with a McBride. My McBride of 52 years is improving, Knockwood. He meant his wife, whose name was Mary McBride Smith. Then he added, however, let me mull it over. Sincerely, thanks, John Ford, which was remarkable. Um, actually, that was November of 71. 
I had sent him my article on the searchers that Mike and I wrote for Sight and Sound. He had actually heard about it and had his secretary write me and say, could you send us this piece on the searchers? So that's what he's apparently referring to when he said the upbeat Kanye way he treated me. And I should have pursued that, but I didn't. I still kick myself to some extent when he says, let me mull it over. Uh, It turned out that he was cooperating with his grandson, Dan Ford, on a biography at the time. So it probably would have been unlikely he would have agreed to let me interview him in depth. But, you know, I could have tried. And Dan was doing um, a lot of interviews, uh, audio interviews with Ford and other people in the family and and collaborators, and they're at the uh, Lilly Library in Indiana, Bloomington, Indiana, and that formed the basis of a biography that Dan wrote called Happy, which came out in 79, and there was another one before that by Andrew Sinclair, and they're they're both uh, fairly good in, in different ways, but they, they're incomplete, and they they miss certain aspects of Ford, and they, they sort of miss his complexity, I felt, and Ford had died in 73. I came to Hollywood in 73, and he died a month later. And I also, when I arrived, I thought I'd love to go out and see him. I knew that he was dying out in the desert and near Palm Springs, and uh, I didn't get around to going. I didn't. I felt a little wary of, you know, just barging in. Um, I had gone to his office once when I came back to Hollywood in 71. I just showed up at his office hoping he would be there, and he wasn't there. But I spent an hour with him. Uh, in 1970, doing an interview, and it was a difficult interview because he was very crotchety with interviewers generally, and he was difficult with me. He wouldn't answer certain questions. He would be very gruff. He would make sarcastic remarks. Uh, he would even pretend not to remember certain films he made, like when I asked about Ford Apache. He didn't. He claimed he didn't remember what that was. And, you know, I wondered if he was going senile or what. But I realized later this was all a big act that he was putting on. Uh, to kind of throw me off guard, and it certainly did. I was taking it a little too seriously. I was too earnest, and I had a lot of questions I wanted to ask, and I should have gone more with the flow, but I was not quite used to interviewing directors at that time. You know, I've since done many, many interviews with different kinds of directors, and I, I could have handled them a bit better. But it turned out, uh, I mean, sometimes you would say things that were very sharp and um, illuminating, and uh, but they get sort of lost in, in the kind of sarcasm. And I have the tape, and I when I play it back, I find it really fascinating when he kind of lets his guard down occasionally and it spills his emotions or his thoughts. And uh, at the end of the session, I left and I gave him a book that I had published in Wisconsin with the university, the Wisconsin Film Society. I was the head of that. It was called Persistence of Vision, a collection of film criticism that I and other people had written. And we had dedicated the book to Ford, and he lifted up his glasses to look at the dedication. He said, oh, that's sweet, which I thought was very nice, a very such a contrast to his uh, gruff manner. I learned a lot as a biographer just being in his presence for an hour. There's nothing like having some acquaintance with the subject, even a short time. Because, I mean, one thing I realized was he seemed very insecure around a young admirer, which surprised me because here's a guy who had been in the business for 53 years as a director and several years before that. And he seemed a little um, defensive toward a young admirer. And, you know, I knew a lot about his films and, and um, he was he liked that, but he was a little taken aback about how to answer it. 
uh, just his body language and his his manner and all that. I, I learned an awful lot from that. What I didn't realize was happening at the time. He he seemed very skittish, and he kept asking his secretary, he "says uh, Has the uh, man from Italy called? The gentleman from Italy, uh, you know." And, uh, like he'd call her in again and say, have you heard back from this gentleman from Italy? And I didn't know what that was about. And, and um, toward the end of the interview, Ford actually announced his retirement. It was very surprising and moving. And he says, well, it's now 3.30. I'm way past. I've got to call Rome. Got to call up Rome. That's a good piece of news. I'm, and I said, no, this is very good. I'm sorry I asked some silly questions. Ford said, well, it isn't that, but everybody asks the same questions. And suddenly you say, geez, I'm being interviewed. But all you people, I mean, you all ask the same questions, and I'm sick and tired of trying to answer them because I don't know the answers. I'm just a hard-nosed, hard-working ex-director, and I'm trying to retire gracefully. And I said, so you don't like people asking you about your old movies? He said, no, I've forgotten them. I don't know what they're about. I'm just trying to live out my life in peace and comfort and quiet. I found that very moving when, especially that pause before he said ex-director, and then he says, I'm trying to retire gracefully, and I didn't realize until years later when I looked through his papers in Indiana, I went into the papers from that particular day, which was August 19th, 1970, and found out that he really ended his career that day because he was trying to direct a spaghetti western in Italy that Woody Strode, his friend and actor had tried to set up for him. Woody Strode had become a star in Italian westerns and uh, had a, a spaghetti western that Ford wanted to direct. And uh, he was waiting for a guy from Italy, a producer, to call him to say it was on. But it was clear to Ford as the day wore on, he wasn't going to get the call. So he actually, that was the last day of his career that I happened to show up, uh, you know, with strange and sad irony. Well, you also wrote a biography of him, and I'm curious how you managed to even unravel this mystery, because you talked about how he would try to downplay certain aspects of his personality with a lot of bluster. Yeah, um, well, so in 71, as I say, I started trying to do this interview, you know, which entailed a lot of research and travel, going to, you know, just find films. Like I, in those days, you know, before DVDs and things, we had to, Mike Wilmington and I would take the Greyhound bus from Madison to Chicago to see the searchers at the Clark Theater downtown. And we'd go to Evanston, Illinois to see 16 millimeter prints of the films at Films Incorporated. And, and then I started going to Washington, D.C. to go to the National Archives and the Library of Congress. I mean, it took a lot of work to just see the films and then um, to, to find the you know paperwork and documentation and do all the research. And, and uh, I started meeting people who had been in Ford films and interviewing them. And uh, I worked on it sporadically over the years. And I was frustrated. I didn't know how to do this book exactly because he was such a hard nut. Uh, to crack in a sense. Also, I became a little disillusioned. I would hear really bad stories about how he treated people. And I started, you know, I kind of hero worshipped him. And then I went the opposite extreme thinking that I was very let down by him. So I didn't quite know how to juggle the different sides of Ford. He had different parts to his personality, as we all do. As I later came to realize, he was not as not just one thing or another. And Anna Lee, who was in uh, 10 Ford films, who was a very nice, gracious lady, said an interesting thing to me about our critical study, John Ford. She said, well, I like the book, but uh, you and uh, your co-author were um, 
made out John Ford to be more liberal than he really was. And she she called herself a Winston Churchill conservative, and she said he was actually much more conservative. And, and I think that we were kind of emphasizing the liberal aspects of Ford to make him more palatable to the audience of 19 early of the early 70s you know that we were trying to show that he was actually pretty radical and, and quite revisionist and, and full of questions about American history and and yet and there's the other side of Ford too which is you know the um, kind of hardcore patriotic John Ford and we de-emphasized that and so I realized she was right so I thought well a real biography would have to encompass all these different uh, contradictions and complications. Abraham Pulaski, who is a friend of mine, who is a great blacklisted writer-director, really admired Ford, and I once said Ford was conservative, and he said, well, you can't say that about Ford. You can't make a simple statement about Ford. He's he's not one thing or another. He's, he's many things. And so as in the course of many years doing the biography, which finally came out in uh, 2001, so that's 30 years of work off and on. Of course, I did a lot of other things in, in the meantime, but you know, there were intense periods of interviewing and research along the way in the 80s and, and 90s and into 2000s. I, I interviewed as many people as I could find. I got to a lot of people who are no longer with us. For example, Olive Carey, who was an actress who was Harry Carey's widow and he was Ford's first star. She was the mother of Harry Carey Jr., who was in a lot of Ford films and became a good friend of mine. But she knew him longer than anybody else in the business. She she met him when he was just a prop man at Universal and a young guy there. So she gave this unique perspective on Ford and Harry Carey and the early films they made. That was really priceless. And I interviewed a lot of actors and cameramen like Winton C. Hoke, who shot Searchers and other Ford films and The Quiet Man. And, screenwriters like Philip Dunn and, um, you know, just a wide range of people and people, other people who knew him in different capacities. Catherine Clifford, who was his research assistant, who was a really fascinating woman who, she told me Ford hired her partly because he wanted somebody to talk to about books and history and there was nobody else in Hollywood who cared, you know. So she would catalog his library. He had something like 6,000 books and she made a catalog so he could find a book easily, and he he would send her home for a week with, like, four books on the Civil War to read, and then she'd come back and they'd talk about them in length, and he loved talking about the Civil War. That was his main passion in life. He told Gavin Lambert, who was a friend of mine, who was a film critic and biographer, and... Um, Gavin thought he was kidding, but I don't think he was kidding. He said he cared more about the Civil War than he did about motion pictures. Um, so over the years, you know, I, I did just endless research on Ford and finally bore down and finished the book. Um, but I think that somehow when I realized that Ford was not easily reduced to any one thing or another, I think that was the insight that enabled me to, to finish this book, you know, that he was a, a mass of contradictions. And that you could not reconcile some of these contradictions. They were stark contradictions in some ways. He could be very cruel and very kind. He could be extremely critical of the United States and then sometimes too gullible about American values, you know, like in, in the case of the Vietnam War. And he was uh, very, very anti racist usually, but sometimes he would slip into racial stereotypes. For example, Ford Apache, very pro-Native American film, 
1948. And then two years later, he makes Rio Grande, which I think is a rather racist film, <laughs> which demonizes the Indians to an extent that even the the Breen office, the censorship office, complained about the script and said it was too racist. And I interviewed a Navajo woman, uh, Lillian Bradley Smith. I went to Monument Valley as part of my research and interviewed some of the Navajos who knew Ford, and that was very enlightening. And I said to her, you know, how is it that he could, um, you know, be so sympathetic to your people in Fort Apache and two years later turn around and make this film that was, you know, making Indians look bad. And she said, well, it all depends on who wrote the script. I thought this was a very good insight. She said, it all depends on who wrote the script. And, you know, most film critics haven't reached that point of sophistication to figure that out, that it isn't just Ford making it all by himself. He had help and he had different kinds of collaborators. And he Yet, he was the guy responsible and in charge, and he hired the writers. So for Fort Apache, he had Frank Nugent, who was very liberal, and he was part Jewish and part uh, Irish, and very concerned about racial issues, very enlightened on those issues. So that's a big reason Fort Apache is so good. But on Rio Grande, the writer was James Kevin McGinnis, who is a right-wing, hardline Catholic, hardline anti-communist, one of the blacklist leaders in Hollywood a very simple-minded guy, and he died soon after they made the film, and so he demonizes the Indians and makes them, as Richard Slotkin writes in one of his books on American Westerns, uh, they're treated as the Reds, literally, just like the communists in Korea. And he thinks uh, Rio Grande is an allegory for our involvement in the Korean War, which I think is, is, is true. It's basically about how John Wayne's character is ordered to violate a treaty by crossing into Mexico in pursuit of the Indians. And it, it justifies breaking international law, which is a very clear analogy to the Korean War. So the Indians are kind of stand-ins for the, for the communists in Korea, which um, helps account for the skewed politics of the film and uh, the problems connected with it. But the same guy made both films, so how do you, how do you reconcile that? And for a while, I just couldn't figure that out. And I finally realized, well, there were different sides of this man. And we all have different sides if we're honest about it. We're, you know, we're, none of us is one thing or another, and we're, none, of, none of us is perfect on every issue. And uh, also Ford changed over the years. He evolved, which is a big part of the interest in writing a biography is how somebody grows and changes. And he kept, he kept evolving as an artist throughout his career. So I finally put all that together. And But rec- uh, recognizing the irreconcilable conflicts was part of the key to the book. Well, let's talk about the man who shot Liberty Valance. I'm curious, what were your initial thoughts when you first saw that? Well, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance was the first Ford film I saw in a theater. Uh, it was actually the only Ford film I saw in a theater on its original release. It came out in 62. And I was a kid. I was not going to a lot of films in the 60s, early 60s, because I was in high school and I was studying really hard. And But I went out to see it probably because it was a John Wayne film and I loved Rio Bravo, I remember. And so I was a Wayne fan. So I went to see that and I was impressed. I remember admiring it at the time. I didn't quite totally understand the, you know, the, the range and depth and complexity of that film, but I got some of it, I think. And um, the, the flashback scene in which the plot is revealed that uh, James Stewart did not kill Liberty Valance, John Wayne did it from the shadows with Woody Strode as his accomplice. Uh, Wayne reveals that late in the film, which is quite a striking 
scene, and it reveals the truth behind the legend. And it's it's a film about how myths are created in America, and it's a very profound film about American history. Somebody recently called it the greatest American political film, which could be true, although you could say that about Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, I suppose. But Liberty Valance gets to the heart of... um, how we create stories about ourselves in America and we create heroes and we create legends of uh, heroism uh, about how the West was was tamed, et cetera, that aren't true and that are actually lies. And the film exposes those. And I, and I think I was very uh, influenced by that even as a 15-year-old kid. And this was the year before the Kennedy assassination. And um, <clears throat> I had worked for John F. Kennedy in the 1960 campaign in Wisconsin, the presidential primary. I was a volunteer, and I met him three times, and my mother was a worker on the campaign. She she became the vice chairman of the state Democratic Party. And so in the fall of 61, I had written a short story about Kennedy's assassination, oddly enough, called The Plot Against a Country. And so this is two years before it happened. I wrote a uh, story because I was worried about this, and I, I later I wrote a book on the subject called "Into the Nightmare: My Search for the Killers of President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett," which was another great, you know, uh, interest of mine that went over decades. I spent 31 years in that book and came out in 2013. And I was trying to figure out why did I write this short story when I was a kid, and I realized it was because I had seen Kennedy up close in in the primary, and he had no protection. And I, at one point, there was a big rally, and I uh, stood next to him, got his autograph, and shook his hand, and everything, and and had a brownie camera with a flashbulb, and I fired a flashbulb off next to his head, like three feet away from his face, which was incredibly rude. And he kind of turned around in shock, and and but he quickly recovered and sort of smiled and laughed. But I felt immediately embarrassed. But I, I think I, I realized how vulnerable this man was, and. So this scene in Liberty Valance prefigures the Kennedy assassination uh, in an eerie way. Uh, not that we would have recognized any of this consciously, but artists are often the canaries in the coal mine. So Ford was on to a lot of things about American history. And, and it was probably the greatest American film of the 60s. Uh, it really sums up a lot of the questioning of American history that we were doing in that period and the, the realization that a lot of our history was... Uh, based on falsehood and and uh, fantasy, et cetera, and, and and Ford was ahead of the curve. This is also the sum, summation of his entire career. Really, his testament film. It's his uh, 53rd western, and after that, he made um, Dunham's Reef. Cheyenne Autumn was his last western, which is another revisionist film, and then seven women and then he made a couple of documentaries and that was it so he was summing up his entire career as the preeminent western director with this film that is all about the genre it's a very self-conscious film and when i teach it in classes the students are always really impressed but i i, I don't let, let them write about it because it's too easy to write about it in a sense uh because it actually analyzes itself it, it's such an intellectual film it has a great screen Screenplay by Willis Goldbeck and James Warner Bella, um, and it, it really is self-analytical. It's a very intellectual film, and it, it um, 
that tells the story and analyzes the story and analyzes the characters and the themes. And it's um, unfortunately, I found when students write about it, they they get it, but they just kind of repeat what the film says. They don't add anything to it generally, which I guess is a tribute to the film. Uh, but there are a lot of hidden aspects to it and subtleties that that go unnoticed. And we should mention Dorothy M. Johnson was the author of the story that is based on which came out in 1949, appeared first in Cosmopolitan. She was a very good Western writer. She wrote novels and nonfiction books. She wrote also A Man Called Horse, which was made into a film. And so she has some of the basic elements in her story, although <clears throat> there are some big differences, too. In her story, the um, Jimmy Stewart's character, the one, the one similar to Stewart, does not admit that the story was false, as Stewart does in the film. He tells the story to a newspaper editor and a, uh, and a couple of reporters and <clears throat> come, tries to come clean that he wasn't the man who shot Liberty Valance. His whole career was based on fraud, basically. And they don't want to print the story, which is a really profound uh, twist to that we, we prefer to, to go with the lie in America. Print the legend is what the guy says. You know, when the when the legend becomes fact, print the legend. People often quote that line sometimes as if Ford is endorsing that sentiment, but actually, if you really know, understand the film, he's not endorsing that. He's criticizing that idea. And uh, when Scott Iman titled his Ford biography "Print the Legend," I thought, well, that's a tempting phrase to use, but it's I think all wrong for a biography. You know, and as Peter Bogdanovich pointed out. In both Ford Apache, which has some similarities to that theme, and Liberty Valance, Ford prints the facts, but in the film it shows people printing the legend. At the end of Ford Apache, John Wayne lies to newspapermen about Henry Fonda, who is actually a megalomaniacal racist who gets his men massacred, and they've twisted him into a hero. And so Wayne goes along with the lie and says some things that are very carefully shaded, but are kind of not questioning his myth and allows the myth to uh, exist. And Liberty Valance, James Stewart's character, who's a young lawyer who comes to town and wants to clean up this town but doesn't have the uh, ability with a gun, etc., that John Wayne's character does, um, <clears throat> he wants to tell the truth because and, and, it's hard living with a lie your whole life. But the people don't want to hear it, and the, the the newspaper people don't want to hear it, and they stand for the American people. So we don't want to hear the truth about our country, and that that's been proven, you know, over and over again with uh, the Kennedy assassination and many other things that uh, a lot of people just would prefer not to know the hard facts. Even though a lot of people, you know, when they have polls on the Kennedy assassination, seventy percent of the American public realize the official story of a lone gunman is false. But you keep reading that in newspapers and magazines. That's sort of the official version that keeps being repeated. And one of one of my friends on Facebook recently said, "Well, we just we're a country that loves to be lied to." And unfortunately, I think that's true because we have this myth of American exceptionalism, which we subscribe to, which is pretty absurd because you know it means that we're the greatest of all countries and we're just superior to everybody else. And you know, over and over again, that's proven not to be true. And I mean, there's so many things that we're behind other countries on, for example, uh, women's rights and children's rights and, 
infant mortality and health care and all it could go through the whole litany that a lot of countries are way ahead of us and yet we still like to think of ourselves as you know the the best and the leading country in the world so to do that we have to tell lies about ourselves to justify that and that's what ford is getting into well, it's interesting that there are two sets of newspaper people in the movie, that we have them as the, the rapper and then also the newspaper man in the story itself and the way that his role against Stewart, how he plays off of Stewart as well. That's a very good point because there is a good newspaper man, a really honest newspaper editor played by Edmund O'Brien, Dudden Peabody, and he's one of the heroes of the film and he's he hires James Stewart's character, Ransom Stoddard, as a reporter and tries to print the truth about Liberty Valance being a murderous thug terrorizing the town, and he gets severely beaten for it. And uh, he's he's the epitome of a good truth-telling journalist. So he's a contrast to the modern newspaper people who, you know, cover up the truth. Carlton Young plays the editor, who's always plays sort of a smug supercilious guy in Ford films. But in, it's, I found an interesting thing in the uh, cutting continuity for the film, right before the editor says, when the legend becomes fact, print the legend, there was a line originally shot where he says, as, as my, as I think he says, as the late great Dutton Peabody used to say, and that's Mr. Peabody, uh, uh, and they cut that line out, and so there's a gap, and so it cuts from um, James Stewart to the um, editor. And to cover that cut, they dubbed in some footsteps to justify the fact that he is now seen across the room from Stewart. If you look at the film carefully, you'll notice that. And I realized, and, and those lines are actually in the novelization that James Warner Bella published, which is clearly based on a probably the cutting continuity or the shooting script. Um, so he, he's, he's, he's attributing that famous line to Mr. Peabody. But Ford must have realized that Peabody wouldn't have actually said that because he's against that whole attitude of lying, you know, to cover things up. Peabody was the man who tried to tell the truth. So I find that a very interesting contrast. There's a picture of Peabody in the, in the uh, newspaper office in the film. And so he's, he's kind of a remembered venerated figure, but they've lost a sense of what he actually stood for, which is one way forward commenting on how we've declined in our culture since uh, since those days. That was the early 1900s that the film ends in. Peabody represents more of the frontier vitality and mentality. As Robin Wood says, the film shows a contrast between the vitality of the Old West and the drained, dried out, sad quality of the modern West, which is you know around 1910 with automobiles and things, and the town in the film, in the framing story, looks very uh, quiet and depressed, and there's not much action going on in the streets. And then when you have the flashbacks, it's rowdy and it's full of uh, chaos and humor and warmth, but there's also violence and anarchy, and so it's not a perfect society either. Dutton Peabody definitely had a uh, a drinking problem. My goodness. Yeah, yeah, he's. Uh, I mean, that's just cliche of newspaper men, but often true that they often drink a lot, you know. Part of it is it's a very stressful job. I used to be a newspaper man myself, and um, it's 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 not a profession I'd want to be in now because, I mean, you know, it's a young man's profession just in terms of the hard work involved and the long hours and 
the smoking and the drinking and all that kind of stuff gets to after a while. But he's a flawed figure. He's a Shakespearean figure. And Edmund O'Brien was a Shakespearean actor. He had he played Brutus for Orson Welles on stage and Julius Caesar, for example. And I got to know him. He's one of the first Ford actors I met. He was in The Other Side of the Wind, the, the Ford, Wells film that I'm in. And in 1971, I did some scenes with him, and he's, he was wonderful. He was having a physical decline. We thought maybe he was suffering from alcoholism. He looked pretty bad, and he was having some trouble sometimes you know, slurring his words and things. But it turned out he was in the early stages of Alzheimer's. But he still gives a very moving and powerful performance in that film. And uh, I asked him about Liberty Valance, and he said that that was such a wonderful experience. He mentioned the scene in which uh, he's drunk and he goes back to his office and he's giving a speech to himself about the freedom of the press and he's addressing his jug by mistake. And then he's you see his office with the press behind him and then he lights a lights a lamp and you see Liberty Valance and his myrmidons as he calls them and they beat him up severely and uh, it's wonderfully shot by William Clothier of the shadows and it's very very beautiful and uh, has a very kind of eerie quality where he's addressing his own shadow etc. O'Brien said they rehearsed that scene all morning and shot it at like 11.30 11.45 in the morning and he said he really liked a director who would let him rehearse that much. You know, most directors don't do that. And it reminded him of his theater days. And he, so he could really get into that role. And I found a letter he wrote to Ford after he made the film, and he said it was the best acting experience he'd ever had in his life. It's funny. At first, when I was rewatching it the other day, I almost thought it was Thomas Mitchell as the, the newspaper man. He is like Thomas Mitchell, isn't he? He's a lot like Doc Boone in Stagecoach, uh, who's a, drunk, a drunken doctor, but he's the heart of the film and, you know, generous warm-hearted, humane guy who affords act, uh, doctors are often alcoholics. And I think the same thing is in play there, that there's a sense that they have a terrible responsibility and a terrible burden psychologically and morally. To uh, They're kind of the moral center of their communities, often like Anne Bancroft and Seven Women has something of a drinking problem too. And she smokes too much, et cetera. And so there's a kind of a stress of, on those characters. And Peabody is like Doc Boone, in that habit that, you know, it's a, it's a way of blowing off steam and, and unwinding from uh, the terrible responsibilities they face, I think. We talked a little bit about how Ford would use John Wayne, and I'm curious, in your opinion, how he would use Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, he well, he did um, Liberty Valance. He did Two Road Together and Shine Autumn with James Stewart who is maybe our greatest film actor. Uh, Andrew Serres called him the, the most complete actor personality in the American cinema. And by that, I think he meant primarily that Stewart was able to fit into the worlds of so many great directors like Hitchcock, Ford, Capra. You know, he's, he's one of the leading actors of all these great directors. Uh, Anthony Mann, even Lubitsch uh, in The Shop Around the Corner, you know, you wouldn't think of Stewart as a Lubitsch actor, but he's wonderful in that film. And so many good films that he was in for so many different kinds of directors. And he he evolved as time went on and showed more and more depth. And after World War II, he came back a somewhat different person, darker sensibility in the Mann films and Hitchcock films. And Ford makes use of that to some extent. But even in Shop Around the Corner, which was made you know, before he went to war, Lubitsch 
shows a certain neuroticism and uh, kind of uh, temp- bad temper and uh, kind of a tough as not the word even mean quality in that character, which helps counterbalance the romance and the what could have been a very sentimental film is not, is not. He's a likable character, but he has flaws. And so Stewart had a lot of range and depth in him. He was very hard to get to know. I, I worked with Stewart five times as a writer and, uh, I wrote the AFI's tribute to James Stewart, and, and um, I interviewed him a number of times. I watched him shooting with John Wayne and the Shootist for two days, the scene where he tells Wayne that he's dying of cancer. I was there when they were shooting this, so I saw the two of them working together. But he was very hard to get to know. He was an enigmatic man. He was a Princeton graduate, a very intelligent man, but he was very inarticulate in a strange way. Like when you would ask him about directors, he would always say the same thing about every director that, you know, he couldn't articulate how, how they work differently. And he would say uh, they didn't believe in dialogue very much, which is actually just not true. If I mean, Ford, that's sort of a myth about Ford that Ford propagated that he didn't believe much in dialogue. Of course, he came from silent films, and he often has great long silent sequences in his films, and he would cut out extraneous dialogue, and you know the dialogue always counts for something, but there, his use of uh, words and dialogue is very rich and delightful in his films. He has a great fondness for American colloquial speech in particular, and the dialogue in Ford's films is, is really fun to listen to, and always, you know, I always say, wonderful writers writing them. And Martin Scorsese as you said, Frank Nugent's dialogue in The Searchers is like poetry. And the dialogue in Liberty Valance is wonderful. It's a very talk-heavy film. You know, it's not a visual spectacle at all. And so Stewart is able to do a lot of complicated dialogue scenes. So it's just not true when he said Ford didn't care for dialogue. I mean, he's, I don't know what he was thinking, really. So he would say things like that. And you couldn't get him to go beyond it. And also, I would try to probe him about World War II. <clears throat> he had quite an experience. He was a bomber pilot, and he was uh, in the 8th Air Force, and he led bombing raids in German cities. And, you know, it was a very um, harrowing, serious experience for him. And he just couldn't talk about it or wouldn't talk about it. And when he came back from the war, he had it in his contracts that he wouldn't have to talk about his war experiences. He didn't want people to exploit them, which is admirable. But I think there was a uh, <clears throat> there was a dark side, a uh, difficult side for him to talk about. He couldn't talk about. He he became kind of a super patriot after the war, like Wayne did. Although Stewart actually had paid his dues by being in the service, and Wayne had not. And Wayne's wife. Pilar said that she thought he became a super patriot in compensation for not being in the service. But in Stewart's case, I think it was a genuine modesty, like a lot of people who've been in combat, they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to brag about it. Or also, they maybe have a hard time talking about the terrible aspects of killing people and things of that sort. And I've met two men who've won the Medal of Honor General Jimmy Doolittle and uh, Admiral. Uh, John Bulkley, who was the model for the Robert Montgomery character, and they were expendable. And both of them tried to refuse the Medal of Honor because they had lost too many of their men who served under them. And uh, they were very upset that they were being honored. And they were both uh, ordered to accept the Medal of Honor. It's kind of a publicity thing to some extent. Of course, they they greatly deserved it. But uh, true heroes or men have done 
feats of uh, valor and, and war don't talk about it much. So Stuart was, was a strange personality to figure out. But, I mean, that's part of being an actor, I think, is you you it comes out on the screen and it comes out through other people. When I was a kid, I was watching Henry Fonda on, on The Tonight Show, and I was really surprised. He he said, I guess it was Jack Parr who was interviewing him, and uh, uh, Henry Fonda said, I became an actor because I didn't like being myself, and I wanted to be other people. And I had never thought of it that way before, and it never occurred to me. But that is a reason a lot of actors become actors, is they're not comfortable with themselves, or they're shy, like Fonda was, and he felt much more at ease being somebody else. And I think Stewart had some of that in him, too. Wayne was more of an integrated personality. I think he was kind of more what he was on the screen, even though he was complex on the screen and he was complex off the screen. He didn't have as much to hide. I mean, there were things he didn't talk much about why he didn't serve in the war and things like that, but he was more uh, open and a simpler man in some ways than Jimmy Stewart, I think. Well, we talked about John Wayne and Jimmy Stewart and how they were two of a handful of actors that would uh, Ford would go back to time and again as far as the lead roles. Now, he did have kind of his stock company of actors that he would put in other roles. I'm curious... I am most fascinated by Woody Strode being one of the few African-American actors who shows up in this. And I'm curious, what was his relationship like with Woody Strode? One of the strange things about this film, and it put off certain critics, didn't get very good reviews when it came out mistakenly, uh, was that Wayne and Stewart are, um, you know, they're in the, well, Stewart's in the framing story, Wayne is dead, Stewart's an old man. But then in the flashback, which encompasses most of the film, they're much younger. And Stewart is supposed to be a young guy, fresh out of law school, but he's in his 50s at the time. And Wayne is uh, Wayne is an uh, older man, too. And uh, Ford made no attempt to disguise their age, except having Stewart act a little gawky. Uh, and some people thought this was bizarre. My friend Mike Wilmington, who wrote the Ford critical study with me, thought that I mean, it's a film of ideas. It's 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 not a uh, naturalistic film. It's a, it's a film of ideas, like, uh, and it's kind of like a Carl Dreyer movie. And it's starkness to emphasize the ideas. I think is the reason. And Mike said that he thought the characters in the past are projections of the characters in the present. That's one way to look at it. That they're they're enacting this drama uh, from their youth, but they're the same guys they are in you know in 1910 that gives a certain futility to the characters because you know that it's not going to turn out any, any way different that it's just an interesting thought but it's it's a strange uh, way to shoot a film and uh, I, I think that's part of the poetry of the film um to get to the Woody Strode relationship, Woody Strode was a football player and a wrestler before he became an actor. And actually, very few people know this. So Woody Strode and Kenny Washington were the first uh, black players in the National Football League. So they were the Jackie Robinsons of the NFL, and they deserve credit for that. And Kenny Washington was a big star at uh, UCLA, and he was... The, the one that they really wanted. And so the, the Los Angeles Rams took on Woody Strode as well, who was uh, a very good football player. And uh, But they wanted the two guys to room together on the road. And so they broke the color barrier. And um, 
uh, Rudy Strode was a tremendous, uh, had a tremendous physique, and he was an Olympic athlete. And I, I love the scene in Liberty Valance where he carries John Wayne on his back in the fire when he saves him. Uh, I mean, it, I can't think of any other actor in the world who could carry John Wayne on his back. It's just incredible. I mean, I met John Wayne. He was the only actor I ever met who was larger than he appears on screen. Actors usually are smaller. Wayne was huge, and I shook his hand. It was like holding a giant ham, and my hand disappeared in his. The idea of carrying that man would be you know, unbelievable. But anyway, uh, he did it, and uh, there was also a scene in which they came almost came to blows because of some kind of uh, uh, accident that occurred on the set, and uh, and uh, Wayne... It was uh, Woody, Woody Strode was going to go after Wayne, and uh, uh, Ford told him to stop because he's our star, you know. And uh, Wayne uh, Ford, uh, you know, treated Wayne pretty badly throughout his career. And one of the things he kept needling Wayne with on the set was um, he would say to Wayne, he would point to Woody Strode and say, "Hey, Duke, there's the real football player." Because Wayne was a football player at USC, but not not a star. And this would get Wayne worked up. Also, Woody Strode was in World War II, and uh, and Ford was too, and, and Wayne was not, of course. And Wayne was sensitive about that, so he he Ford would make remarks about that. <laughs> um, but they have a good relationship in the film. Uh, Wayne's character and Strode are, are close friends, of course, and uh, they live together, and it's almost like a husband-wife relationship. Um, there's a certain homoeroticism in some of those. Ford relationships and um, Strode was Ford's best friend actually in later years uh, they actually lived together uh, Strode moved in and t- kind of took care of Ford in his declining years for a while and uh, there's a story I love uh, during that period some studio chief called Ford and you know the butler said or the whoever said studio chief is on the phone, Mr. Ford, and he said, tell him I can't come to the phone. Tell him I'm sitting here talking with my good friend, Woody Strode, which I thought was great. But Woody Strode was was a, a fine actor as well, and um, I actually spoke at his memorial service. People were uh, talking about what a great athlete he was and a groundbreaker in films, and, you know, in Spartacus, he has that great scene with Kirk Douglas where they're uh, having the duel to the death, and uh, Woody Strode refuses to kill Douglas, and then he gets killed by Lawrence Olivier. It's, it's very powerful. And uh, nobody was saying a lot about Strode's acting, though. They were kind of defensive about it. And I, I got up and I gave a little talk about what a good movie actor he is. And a lot of movie acting is body language. And I said that he acted with his body. He was very eloquent with his face and his his uh body and his gestures and the way he moved was very graceful and strong and um he, he handled dialogue well he was not a you know a well-trained actor in the sense of coming from the theater or anything but he he does some uh, beautiful line readings and liberty uh, and, and sergeant rutledge which he had starred in before liberty valance uh it's a powerful film about black soldiers and uh the, the buffalo soldiers and Woody Strode felt that he carried the whole black race in that film. He said it meant a lot to him, and it was a daring film for 1960. And um, he has a speech where he he breaks down on the witness stand where he's falsely accused of rape, and uh, and he he uh, says, "I'm not a I'm not a swamp running N-word. I'm a man." And he starts crying. It's very moving. Ford did a trick on him that was 
cruel, but he had done it to Victor McLaughlin. Um, when Victor McLaughlin had his big trial scene in The Informer, he told him, uh, Vic, we're not going to shoot tomorrow with you, so just go out and have a good time. And he sent him off with a friend of his to get drunk, and they, they got wildly drunk and rolled into, uh, you know, uh, McLaughlin fell into bed at like at five in the morning, and at six o'clock they called him and said, we changed the schedule, you've got your big scene, come, come over, you know. So he had to do this scene with one hour of sleep and a horrible hangover, and he's he's great in it, and he won him the Academy Award because he's fumbling for the lines, etc. And so he did the same with Woody Strode. He told his son Pat to take him out drinking the night before that big scene, and he said, we're not going to shoot that scene tomorrow, and then, of course, he did. So poor Woody was, was um, fumbling around, partly because of that, but Ford wanted that kind of... Um, he wanted to break down the reserves of some of these actors uh, who were, you know, uh, maybe uh, insecure about their acting, because both of those guys did not come from a classical training background. I mean, uh, McLaughlin was was a military man, and Strode was an athlete, you know, so they needed some help, and Ford gave it to them, but it was tough working for Ford, you know. But Strode is is, is terrific as Pompey. He's um, quiet and he's. Um, very strong guy. He's he's a stalwart of the community, and and he's Wayne's protector and friend. And and uh, but he's made up as a kind of Uncle Remus character, as Jimmy Stewart said. And Stewart said that on the set, and Ford got kind of angry and uh, humiliated Stewart for saying that. But Ford was trying to make that point. He said that's what I was trying to make. The point was that he was this. Uh, a black, powerful-looking black man who's put in this subservient position in this town. And he emphasizes that in a scene, for example, like the polling scene where they vote on the delegate. He's sitting in, outside because he's not allowed inside and he's not allowed to vote, and Ford makes that point very strongly in the, the visuals. He doesn't always make the points verbally, but he makes them visually. And, um, and then Strode is involved with uh, Wayne uh, Donovan's character in, in shooting Liberty Valance, they're both in it together in the shadows. So he's got a key role in the story, and then he's he's in the great scene at the, the funeral. And when Ford died um, at his funeral in Hollywood, the first person who was at the church, everybody else was sort of outside milling around. Woody Strode was sitting quietly in the church all by himself, just like Pompey and Liberty Valance. So he meant a lot to Ford. He was he was a friend and a, and a, a mainstay for his work. Well, you talked about the way that he protects the John Wayne character, and it's interesting how every time, for the well, actually, I think almost every single time that Ransom is in trouble, there's Wayne showing up, and then with Strode kind of hanging in the background as again like a, a guardian angel. And I'm curious what you think of Ransom Stardard as a character. Yeah, uh, there's also the scene where um, Woody Stroke carries Ransom Stoddard after he's been severely beaten. And uh, so he is a, a, a man, of, you know, Ford keeps emphasizing the role of black people in American history in his films. And it's not always, uh, they were not always in roles that, you know, make us uh, feel good today because we look back and we see them in subservient positions, but he's true to the times. And yet he's showing the strength and, 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 and the character of this man. Um, Ransom Stoddard, uh, you know, it's funny because for a long time I thought, well, he's a sham. He's got this political career that's based on a lie. and uh, He's kind of 
to a fraud, and, and I kept saying that, and my wife, uh, Ruth O'Hara, who was very knowledgeable about Ford, um, she and I talked you know, about Ford for many years, and she said, well, you know, Ransom Stoddard is actually a kind of a hero because he's the only person in town who has the guts to stand up to Liberty Valance. Even John Wayne doesn't want to do it. They're kind of letting Liberty Valance run rampant through this town. And they're all kind of afraid of him. Wayne is not afraid of him, but he just doesn't want to get involved, and uh, he doesn't want to get you know involved in shooting him. And uh, Stoddard forces the issue. He's he's an outsider, and he says we need to have law and order, and we have to have uh, respect for the law. And so he gets a gun, and it's pathetic because he can hardly shoot, and he's going to get killed. And but he's out there in the street. He's taking the chance. He's leading the community. And uh, I saw her point that he is a heroic figure in a sense. So he's a mixed bag. He's a complex guy. And I, I heard an interview with Steven Spielberg who said when he was a kid in Phoenix, getting bullied and beaten up partly because he was Jewish and partly because he was small and he was not a jock, he said he really identified with the Ransom Stoddard character because he fought back against uh, bullies, and he said that inspired him because he said, I felt bad that I wasn't doing that enough. Uh, the way Spielberg uh, fought back was to make films about people and put, the, like, the main bully he put into a character playing a, a German soldier in one of his films so he could boss him around and, and uh, you know, portray him as a German soldier, and uh, that's a clever way to disarm your bullies, and, and, and after a while, Spielberg got respect, but he, he didn't fight back with his fists or anything like that, and as you, as sometimes you feel like you need to do when you're a kid. So he he admired the Stoddard character for standing up for things, so I, I think you have to look at him that way, too. Tell me your thoughts about the Vera Miles character. She plays a, an important role. She's one of the few people to move from the past, you know, the the present where we start into the past and then back again. But she doesn't say a whole lot when she's in that wraparound story. Yeah, she's very quiet in there because she's very sad and she's brooding. And, uh, you know, at the end of the film, she, it's very eloquent. Although she has a very key line at the end where she looks out as they're going back to Washington. She's looking at, you know, the land they're leaving, which is where she came from. And, and uh, she says, look at it. It was once a wilderness. Now the garden aren't you proud? And then you look at Stuart, and he's not proud. He's look. He looks very sad and bleak. And I said to, actually, I gave Stuart the copy of the book that Mike Wilmington and I wrote, and we said that was the key moment in the film because Ford is asking the audience, "Are you proud?" And Stuart's reaction is the answer. And Stuart said, "This is on the set of the shootest." I came in and he said, "I've been reading your book," and he said, "I, you know, I, I, I like your essay." And I think that I think that point is it's true. I think that is the point of the film. He said that, uh, "Are you proud?" is the question in the film. So I thought she has that really key line. She, with the thing about Vera Miles's character is that she's really central to the film in ways that the audience may not see the first few times they see it. It took me a while to recognize that. Um, and she's in it a lot, of course, in, in the flashback. She has a lot of important uh, dramatic moments where she's the catalyst for a lot of the events. She gets Tom, for example, to save Ransom Stoddard from getting killed and gets Tom and Pompey to shoot Liberty Valance. I mean, it's, that's the key action in the film. And she's she's speaking out very strongly against injustice and, and why don't you people do something about this Liberty Valance and 
But she, she um, what I noticed watching it again very carefully is that she makes all the key decisions in the film, not only those, but like, for example, in the framing story, um, when uh, the editor comes in and demands to know the story of who is Tom Donovan, uh, Stewart hesitates and uh, he looks at Vera, Vera Miles, Hallie, his wife, and she nods. She gives the approval. She She's the one who decides to tell the story. And when you think about that, that's a very big decision because um, he's going to reveal that their whole uh, his whole career is, is a fraud and a sham, and that could ruin his career and uh, could change history. And she's willing to go along with him. She's lived with him all those years, living with a lie. And uh, you can see the effect on her face and personality at the end. Uh, the couple look very sad and, uh, and kind of uh, bereft and. Uh, as Robin Wood said, there's a certain era quality to the, the framing story, which is 1910, um, that there's a lack of vitality, and, and it's seen most clearly in, in the lack of energy and the sadness of the couple, uh, the Stoddards. And so it's taken a toll on her, and I think she wants to be liberated from that because it's very hard to deliver the lie. But you have to give her a lot of credit for that. So she tells, she gets him to tell the story, and then the irony is that the editor won't print the story, which uh, I think is a very trenchant comment, very accurate on American journalism, that quite often you give a story to a newspaper and they won't print it because they don't want to hear about it. I mean, I'd, one of my, um, probably the most important scoop I ever had as a reporter was I discovered that George H.W. Bush was in the CIA long before he became the director, which contradicts his his version, and so he lied under oath at his um, confirmation hearing. He said he had no intelligence background, and I pr printed that in The Nation, caused a big stir, and it's been picked up in a lot of books. And then uh, and then I had a third story that The Nation wouldn't print, but I wrote about it in my book, Into the Nightmare, My Search for the Killers of John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett, um, that I revealed um, Bush's involvement with turning in a fellow member of the Republican Party, the head of the Young Republicans in Houston, was threatening to kill the president before he came to Texas. And I found a lot of FBI documents and other information, and I researched it, about Bush's involvement with this guy and, and why he didn't tell the Secret Service before Kennedy came to Texas, et cetera, and, and who, who was this fellow. So I had all the documents, and the nation wouldn't publish it, so I called the New York Times before the election, and I said, you know, I'd like to tell you the story. And they, they said, we'll get back to you. And they called a couple of days later and they said, well, I don't think we want to do the story. And I said, well, I'll give you, just give you the documents. You can make it, make of them what you wish. And they said, no, we don't want them. <laughs> they didn't want to hear the story. I mean, this is typical of journalism in so many ways that we think of journalists as crusaders and, you know, all the president's men mythology, etc. But in fact, a lot of them just cover things up and, and follow the official story. So Ford was really onto that in Liberty Valance. And, um, but Hallie, you know, give Hallie a lot of due for wanting to tell the truth. So she's, she's really critical throughout and Ford gives tribute to her. And there's a beautiful scene too, where, um, she admits to, uh, rants that she can't read. She's a frontier woman and, and can't read. And, and he says, he'll teach her how to read and write. And it's a beautiful, that's kind of a love scene and it's uh you know that's the basis for their relationship that she she sees a life with him that is much better than the life being a waitress and uh being 
you know, humiliated by liberty violence, et cetera, and she can go off and have a much more interesting life, uh, and yet it turns out to be hollow. But I found a letter. Um, last year I went to Ireland, and I was spending time with Redmond Morris, who's uh, an Irish film producer whose father was Laura Killanan, Michael Killanan, who was um, uh, Ford's producer as well. And Ford wrote a letter, this is April, this is February, February 14th, 1962, to Michael Colannon. And he, he, he says, I'm busy as the Dickens right now, dubbing my last picture, The Man Who Shot Liberty Valance. Strangely enough, it's a Western aimed at women. It's not a typical Western and, and is laid against a prosaic background. I honestly think it is my best picture to date. Uh, Duke, Jimmy Stewart, and a wonderful cast. And then he added about his secretary, Mita Stern, he said, even Mita likes it, or so she says. And then Mita writes a note, himself's a doubter, isn't he? And after all these DMs, too, Mita. But it's fascinating where he says, strangely enough, it's a Western aimed at women. And nobody's ever really mentioned that before. And, I, uh, you know, in my biography for it, I didn't quite mention that enough, although I focused in, in both of my Ford books on how central Hallie is to the story, but aimed at women. So I, you can make an argument that she's the catalyst for the entire story and uh, deserves a lot more attention than she's been given. Miles is a superb actress. Um, Ford and Hitchcock kind of co-discovered her and used her in a lot of films in the mid to late 50s. Ford put her in Rookie of the Year right after The Searchers. He did The Searchers with her. She's wonderful in that. And then Rookie of the Year, which is a kind of precursor of Liberty Valance. It's a TV show, 1955, where a, um, John Wayne plays a newspaper reporter who finds out the truth about a, uh, uh, a young athlete's father was was uh, kicked out of the game for, for uh, taking bribes, and he refuses to print the story. It's like Liberty Valance, and Vera Miles is the, the girlfriend of this young guy. And then... Um, She's she's uh, in Liberty Valley. She's great, and she uh, she had started with Ford in uh, When Willie Comes Marching Home. She she had a bit part that was cut out, although you can see it as an extra now. And she was, uh, I believe, uh, third runner up to Miss America in 1948. A very beautiful woman, and uh, Hitchcock put her in some terrific parts. Uh, there's a wonderful TV show called Revenge that he did, where she's the lead as just superb and then he was going to he put her in the wrong man and he was going to make her a big star with vertigo and he cast her and, and there were pictures of her in the costumes and then she got pregnant and she announced to Hitchcock she was pregnant her husband was Lex Barker who played Tarzan and Ford Hitchcock was very jealous I think he had a crush on her they didn't like it that Tarzan had impregnated Vera Miles so he um you know, she couldn't play the part, and it became this great film. Kim Novak played the part. And he put Miles in a small part in Vertigo, uh, I, I'm sorry, in Psycho, which is a good part, but it's not flashy at all. And uh, he said in the interview with Truffaut that I was going to make Vera Miles a star, but after the Vertigo thing, the rhythm just wasn't there anymore, which is kind of an interesting, has a kind of interesting sexual component. But she went on to do other films, uh, had a good, solid career, and then she retired, and she's she never gives interviews. She's still alive, but she's very mysterious. I would love to talk to her. But she's just so so superb in this forward in Hitchcock films. One, one theme that I thought of that is important to the story, and I should just, again, mention what a great screenplay it is by Willis Goldbeck and James Warner Bella. Bella wrote 
the stories that Ford's Cavalry Trilogy were based on, Ford Apache, Chouriel, Riven, and Rio Grande. <clears throat> and he was an extremely racist writer, uh, shockingly racist when you read his fiction. He, he came up with some good storylines and some good characters, but his, his racism toward uh, Native Americans was uh, uh, really extreme and appalling. Uh, but when, he, when Ford made Ford Apache, he took all that out and kept the storyline. And Frank Nugent, who was a liberal, wrote the story with great sympathy for, for the Native Americans. But Bella was a strange man. And one of his sons said he was a fascist. And uh, he actually kind of made sneering remarks about Ford being shanty Irish and stuff like this. But somehow, anyway, he worked on Liberty Valance with the producer, Willis Goldbeck, who is a veteran Hollywood uh, writer and producer, and they produced a great screenplay. There's no doubt that the, it's one of the best screenplays Ford ever had. And Bella did the novelization. He also um, worked on Sergeant Rutledge, and the, that's a very anti-racist film, and yet when you read the uh, novelization, racism creeps into it because Bella wrote it. But um, in the script, uh, a big theme of the script is very explicit about its... Uh, its uh, themes, you know, it, I mean, it discusses them because it's a film of ideas. As they say, and it's very, very uh, thoughtful and, and subtle. I think the theme of the film is expressed in a quote that Jean Renoir gave once. I'll read this to you. Um, he said, "It is practically the only question of the age. This question of primitivism and how it can be sustained in the face of sophistication." I thought that was fascinating remark. Uh, Renoir believed in the past in the sense that he thought that the greatest art came from individuality and not mass production. Like he said, for example, he would rather sit in a chair made by an individual carpenter that was imperfect than in a chair turned out by a factory that was perfect, you know, because you could see the hand of the creator in it. And so he thought in the Middle Ages, that was maybe the high point of art. And so he was uh, decrying the, um, the slickness and the mass production and the conformism of the modern age, which is reflected, I think, in the framing story of Liberty of Alice, this kind of dull, conformist town. And uh, as Robin Wood pointed out, there's a contrast in the film between that and the raucous, full-of-life flashback, although the, the, the downside of the, that is that it's anarchic and violent and frightening that Liberty Valance terrorizes this town, but it's full of uh, vitality and colorful characters, and in the framing story, everybody seems drained of energy. For example, Link Appleyard, the uh, old... Um, uh, sheriff in in the flashback is a funny, colorful, lively guy played by Andy Devine, although he's a coward. He does stand up to Liberty Valance at one key point, which is striking. But in the um, framing story, he's a strained old man, white hair, looking sad. And there's that contrast. Uh, but as Saris wrote, Andrew Saris, that there's something glorious that Ford finds in just you know being old and remembering. And he said, Andy Devine, uh, Saris wrote a great essay on Liberty Valance called Cactus Rosebud, which is wonderful in film culture. And he compared it to Orson Welles' Citizen Kane and Magnificent Ambersons. He said that for Ford and for Welles, it's a cinema of memory. He thought the key moment is when Vera Miles uh, opens the, uh, the, the case where she's got the... Um, uh, cactus rose in it, 
and it cuts away and you don't know what's in it until the old end of the film and you see the Countess Rose sitting on the coffin and Sarah said this photograph, needless to say, from the only possible angle. He felt that shot encompassed Ford's entire career. You see the Countess Rose on the coffin in the foreground and in the background you see James Stewart looking at it and then in the further background you see Vera Miles looking sad. And that's the moment when Stewart realizes his wife loves another man. So the Cactus Rose is a great symbol. And another thing Hallie does in the film that's so important is um, when Pompey brings the Cactus, uh, Tom Tom brings the Cactus Rose to her, a very touching scene, and then she asks Pompey to put it in a little garden they have there, and, and she, she, she asks him to water it which is symbolic that he's he's preserving and watering the the rose and Tom brings it to her. And then she says, uh, maybe someday there'll be uh, lots of water and all kinds of, if they ever dam the river, there'll be lots of water and all kinds of flowers. And that's the origin of the, um, the, the, the irrigation bill that Senator Stoddard gets passed, which is the centerpiece of his entire political career that he gets uh, the great credit for. He gets the glory for killing Liberty Valance, but the substantive achievement of his career is irrigating the West, which is extremely symbolic because uh, that's civilization is brought by water uh, as much as by anything where they can, you know, changes the desert into a, a farming community. And uh, that's where she says, look at it, it was once a wilderness, now it's a garden. Aren't you proud? And there's a book by Wilbur Cash about um, virgin land, it's called, and he says that's that's one of the key symbols of of the West and the transition to the modern era was the transformation of the wilderness into a garden. And I, so I think that the writers were sophisticated enough, and Ford certainly read a lot, that they probably took that line from the book Virgin Land, and they gave it to Hallie. So she's, um, you know, this is this is the key symbolic turning point of the film. And so she's in the middle of all this, and uh, Ford is sort of saying, well, look at what we've lost in the past, all the vitality, and and, uh, we have this couple who are sad, they haven't achieved happiness, or their goals in life seem hollow to them. And in the past, there was a lot of energy and um, courage and vitality, but you know, we had to deal with this anarchy back then too, and and uh, it's part of the tragedy of history that they they had to do something about liberty, violence, civilization to to prosper and people to have safety, and yet once he's killed, all the, all the life goes out of the community too. It's a real paradox. So it's a very complex film in that sense. It doesn't give a simple view of history at all. It gives a very complex view of American history. That's why I think it's so great. And the characters are symbolic representations of this drama, and yet they have a lot of life to them. They're not just stick figures or uh, two-dimensional characters. They're three-dimensional, and they, you know, they they motivate the plot as much as the the ideas do. I mean, you get a sense of watching it that the characters are causing events to happen, and yet when you look at it events are causing the characters to behave in certain ways, too. It's uh, You could look at it both ways. And uh, history, I think, is a mixture of both. Uh, you know, I don't come down on one or the other exclusively like some people do, but I think history is a mixture of human uh, agency and, and, and social uh, determinism and social uh, pressures, and the film shows that in a way that's, you know, 
as rich as any film I've ever seen. Yeah, even the henchmen of Liberty Valance aren't just cardboard cutouts. It's really kind of nice. Yeah, those two guys, those guys are great. Uh, there's Strother Martin and Lee Van Cleef, who are scary guys but funny. I mean, they're giggling. and uh, Well, uh, Strother Martin has this sort of insane giggle, and uh, Lee Van Cleef has this really evil stare. And it's interesting to see them coming into the film because they're, they pop up later in... Um, Strother Martin becomes a regular in the Sam Peckinpah company. And Lee Van Cleef uh, became famous in Italian westerns and other films. And uh, so it's like the world of Sam Peckinpah is, is starting to seep into the world of John Ford. Peckinpah became the next great western director, but in many ways he was very different from Ford, although you can tell that he revered Ford too. But for example, in The Wild Bunch, when he starts out with that tremendous, uh, shocking, massacre sequence that goes on for like 20 minutes uh there's a there's a temperance uh meeting going on and they're playing shall we gather gather at the river which is ford's favorite hymn and they start shooting up these temperance people and killing uh women and children and it's kind of like a, a black comedy scene of peck and putt destroying ford's universe in that film uh, and, and showing an even darker side of the West than Ford does in Liberty Valance. But I think if Ford, if Liberty Valance is a turning point in, in the Western genre. After that, it became, it's a very self-conscious film, and the Western itself became more self-conscious about its role as, as a chronicler of American history and, a, and the maker of symbols about our history. And uh, it had a revival in the late 60s and 70s, and then it kind of, died out again when science fiction took over from the Western. Well, you mentioned Ernst Lubitsch, and I know you've got a new Lubitsch book coming out. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, I, the book is called How Did Lubitsch Do It? And it'll be out in June. June 26th is the official publication date, but it should be available soon before that. Well, Mr. McBride, thank you so much for your time today. It is always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, well, thank you, Mike. It's always great to be on your your podcast and, and uh, you always are very thorough and you really cover the the territory with a great range and depth and I really appreciate that We were back and we were talking about the man who shot Liberty Valance. And yeah, I talked about this earlier on is that we were 1962 and we've talked about this being kind of a, the death knell of the Western. And I find it interesting that already, even in 1962, we're already doing revisionist Westerns. We've got Lonely Are the Brave coming out the exact same year, which a lot of people point to as being one of the early revisionist Westerns. And like I said, we are just two years away from A Fistful of Dollars. And then what's fascinating to me is that we are six years before Once Upon a Time in the West, which is Sergio Leone almost doing and i i you know i talk about once upon a time in the west but that's one of my favorite movies of all time but that to me is kind of him also doing a liberty valance and talking about the death of the west and talking about these mythic figures who are going to die and move on you know the the cheyenne character the harmonica character the frank character and 
it's no small coincidence that we end Liberty Balance on a railroad, which is also one of the most taming factors of the West, and that we begin once upon a time in the West, and the whole crux of the story with that one is the railroad and the moving of the railroad through the West. And even with that, we have the water theme and the whole idea of Sweetwater, the station, and the way that water helps tame the West as well. We haven't even mentioned Peckinbar either, who was about to come through and blow the shit out of everything. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I saw Peckinpah's Ride the High Country, which was also 1962. And that was a film, I think that that, because Randolph Scott, he'd yes. worked with Bud Bodicle a great deal. And you can kind of, in watching Ride the High Country, you can see how much, how easily it could have been a Bud Bodicle film. But yet at the same time, even though Peckinpah was quite, not I won't say young, but he was, you know, early on in his career, that film is half and half. It's half the traditional gung-ho mythic Western and it's half the, the West is dead and everything's falling apart and nothing is what we thought it was. Um, so there was definitely, there was a lot going on in 62 in the Western that was pointing both forwards and backwards. I've only got about through about half of my notes here. There was one other note that I wanted to make and this was regarding John Ford and something they said in the Stagecoach audio commentary. And that was that John Ford believed the two most beautiful things that the cinematograph could capture were a couple dancing and a horse running. And I think that like that speaks completely to his entire filmography, that it's that those dual forces of society and culture and the joining of together of two beings in a mutual act, but also the flight into wilderness and the freedom of nature. Um, and it just that, you know, you can see that 100 percent in something like Liberty Valance. And I didn't even talk about the John Carradine section of the film, which is just fucking nuts. When the movie <laughs> introduces John Carradine in that whole political rally, things just change so much. It's just like, am I even watching the same movie? And it suddenly becomes like a scene from Oh Brother, Where Art Thou or something. Well, yeah, because it's, it's those two scenes, isn't it? It's the scenes of Wayne burning down his house, which seems kind of out of nowhere <laughs> like the fact that he loses it that much and that sort of over the top i mean yes it's a wonderfully impassioned and uh, uh, and artistic and obviously it injects the film with some much needed action because a lot of the film is obviously very talkative but it's also very sort of strikingly anti kind of wayne's character up until that point it sort of goes right on to this scene with john carradine and the the voting house and all this sort of stuff and yeah like you say it then becomes another movie altogether and and in fact uh, it, it almost feels that this second half of the film this the scenes don't flow together as easily or as sweetly i guess as they do in the first half of the film but i suppose you could put that down to the fact that it's stoddart in the future narrating it and not every single aspect or element that leads up to everything is 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 relevant i kind of disagree on the the flow thing because you get you get th uh three scenes of destruction in a row and one is the destruction of the media and the printing press and the house which is very symbolic and another thing we didn't even get to talk about then you get the destruction of the villain and then you get the self-destruction of donovan and then what immediately follows can be viewed as an act of creation in that it's the community joining together and facing these villains. And, you know, as we, we, we don't see them defeat the villains, but we know that Stoddard is now a senator. So we know that he 
he overcame these villains, the ranchers and such, and and brought the community together and created a future that they wanted. So I think that it actually it, it works quite beautifully in how it really like you know it sinks down into these depths that you know how are we going to return from this with the the loss of our language and the destruction of the press and and then the, you know the violence of destroying the villain which is you know theoretically great but has seemingly tainted our hero and then the self-destruction of our other hero and then has this you know ending which seems quite strange but as i say when you boil it down it's it's and the ending is an act of creation that's standing against all the destruction that has come before that's been wrought by these people who are you know john carradine etc well now i see it totally your way because <laughs> that was <laughs> that was eloquent and intelligent and mine was just grasping for something to say <laughs> but I, I think it's also that I do wonder if it's something in the Carradine genes that they uh, have, like, some innate skill to just, like, crash a film, like, crashing a party. Because <laughs> how many times has a Carradine just rocked up suddenly in a film and completely, like, sent it in a different direction? <laughs> All right, guys, we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Charlie Barry? You're an interesting man, Mr. Barrick. Last of the independence. Oh my god. You want to die for somebody else's money? Half a million? Could be. Marine Harold Young, Trace Cruz's bank manager, has estimated that the bandits escaped with less than two thousand dollars. Who are they kidding? Us? It's ten to one this stuff belongs to the mafia. This is gambling money skimmed off the top. The mafia kills you. No trial, no judge. They never stop looking for you, not till you're dead. I'd rather have ten FBI's after me. One man against the mafia. Bang! This little bank a million miles from nowhere gets hit by four professionals. Now they're going to think that's strange. Why couldn't it be just a coincidence? Because they don't believe in coincidence. But we're going to get them. Well, I'll never get out of New Mexico. I feel that in my gut. I want to fence off some money. Hot. Burning up. What do you want? Oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to scare you. Which doesn't mean I won't throw you right out that window if I have to. Sooner or later, you're going to tell me everything you know. So why not save yourself a great deal of pain? Where's Charles Varick? Charlie Varick runs out of dumb luck. He always has genius to fall back on. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of Charlie Varick. Before that, I want to thank this week's guests, John and Ben. Ben, what is the latest with you, sir? Oh, I'm not up to much at the moment. I'm trying to get back into doing some of my writings, so hopefully they'll be popping out around the internet. I think I said that last time you asked mm. me. 
<laughs> but uh, it's been a really busy year working. I've been working on a couple of TV shows in post-production, so that's a lot of late nights and long weeks. But, uh, yeah, watch this space. What about you, John? As always, I'm up to way too much, um, but I'll boil it down very simply. Um, check out my website, aftermoviediner.com. Uh, we've got our weekly podcast um, where we discuss uh, both modern films that are out in the cinema right now and hopefully not always the ones that people expect. Uh, but we also go see retro movies in New York. So we've uh, uh, got a, a discussion on hard times, um, Water Hills hard times coming up uh, with um, obviously uh, the actor from this movie whose name oh Lee Marvin. Uh, Lee Marvin and Chuck Bronson um, coming up next week. Uh, we also talked about Gandra and Hess and, and various other kind of retro screenings we get to go see. So it's a nice, diverse podcast. And then we have our wonderful contributors who uh, write articles, reviews, um, analysis, and all sorts of other stuff um, that goes out frequently. So do check out aftermoviediner.com. And the only other thing I'd like to mention, if I am, it's not movie-related, but uh, uh, I did just release a musical album uh, called Former Glory um, by my ludicrously named band Miscellaneous Plumbing Fixtures, um, uh, <laughs> which uh, is the first album I've done uh, where I got a group of friends from all over the place, um, some here in the States and some in England, to record um, sort of digital tracks, whether it's trumpet tracks or keyboard tracks or backing vocals and stuff like that, and kind of add them to uh, my songs as if it was a band, even though we never kind of met in the same room at any one time so it really i think uh lifts my usual kind of average songwriting ability and actually makes them kind of listenable and enjoyable and funky tunes um so please do check out former glory uh, it can be found at miscplumbingfixtures.bandcamp.com um or on spotify if you search miscellaneous plumbing fixtures as well as anywhere else where music is sold but thanks ever so much for letting me mention that of course yeah and i'll have a link over at the website projection-booth.com where you can also find out a little bit more about today's episode episode you also find links over to itunes where you can rate and review the show and to patreon where you can make a donation to the show donors get early access to every episode as long as i'm not running late every donation and every rating we get helps the projection booth take over the world When Liberty Valance rode to town, the women folk would hide, they'd hide. When Liberty Valance walked around, the men would step aside. Because the point of a gun was the only law that Liberty understood. When it came to shooting straight and fast, he was mighty good. From out of the east, a stranger came, a law book in his hand. Oh, man, the kind of a man the West would need to tame a troubled land. Cause the point of a gun was the only law that liberty understood. When it came to shooting straight and fast, he was mighty good. the bravest of them all The love of a girl can make a man stay on when he should go 
stay on Just trying to build a peaceful life Where love is free to grow But the point of a gun was the only law That liberty understood When the final showdown came at last A law book was no good Alone in the parade she prayed That he'd return that fateful night Oh, that night When nothing she said could keep her man From going out to fight From the moment a girl gets to be full grown The very first thing she learns When two men go out to face each other Only one returns Everyone heard two shots ring out One shot made Liberty fall The man who shot Liberty violent He shot Liberty violent He was the bravest of them all The man who shot Liberty Violent He shot Liberty Violent He was the bravest of them all If you enjoy this show and want more people to know about it, head on over to iTunes, leave a comment, and rate it five stars. Make sure you like and share us on Facebook, and don't forget to follow us on Twitter. Just search for Christopher Media. Thank you in advance for supporting Christopher Media by clicking on the PayPal button and by clicking through to all the sponsors who support ChristopherMedia.net. Most importantly, we would like to take the time to extend an extra special thanks to you. Christopher Media could not exist without your support. Thank you for visiting ChristopherMedia.net, and thank you for listening. Christopher Media. Let's make some noise.